This week, we launch our inaugural episode, and we ask you, are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? June 28th, 2021, a date which will live in infamy. That's the day we launched Game of Crimes. Oh, you're so full of it. Oh, you're so full of it. We are official. This is episode one. Uno de episodo, as they say in Espanol. I think it's episodo. Is it episodo, Steve? It's uh, number one. Numero uno. Numero uno. Okay. So... (laughs) We are. This is it, guys. This is exciting. You don't know how long we've been working on this. That's right. And part of it, the reason that we've been working on this for a while, it's because we want to give some quick shout outs to at the front. We're going to get into the podcast here in a minute, but this thing would not have been possible had it not been obviously for an idea Steve and I bantered about quite a few months ago. But it was getting hooked up with the right people at United Talent. Uh, so D- D- Daniel Schmertz, we want to thank him for getting us connected with the folks at Small Town Murder. And you fans out there, you know. Jimmy and James, you know, Jimmy Wiseman, James Petragallo, and Sarah Hunt, the brains behind all of this operation, they have put together a network called the Un- or Upside Down Digital Network, and we, Game of Crimes, Steve, we are numero uno again. Not only is this episode one, we are the first podcast they're putting onto their network. Doesn't that make you feel special? Woohoo! Good for us. Yay. Hey, guess what? Guess what I have? I have clapping built into this now. Listen to this. Yay. (laughs) And then we have cheering. The crowd goes wild. It is us. We have episode one. Yay. It's like Oprah. You get a podcast and you get a podcast and everybody gets a podcast. And we do a live audience. Me and Morgan. We do a live audience. Well, we're both live right now. Steve's been clinically dead for seven years. He just doesn't know it. Yeah, and and just so you guys remember, it's not Morgan and Murph; it's Murph and Morgan on this thing. So just well, just technically, if we go in alphabetical here. order, it's Morgan and Murph. But I'm going to let you go because you know, old men first. You know, old people first. Murph and Morgan, respect your seniors. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I always remember that. It, it's it's a good alliteration too. So hey, guys, we but we want to give a huge shout out to Small Town Murder. They took a chance on us. They interviewed us, and it's really about synergy. It's really about having that connection with people, and we we just connected. I mean, now you will find that our show is different than their show. We are not a knockoff of Jimmy and James. We're not a knockoff of small town murder. We're dealing with true crime. What makes us different is Steve and I both, you know, you're, you're going to find out about us. So I'm, you know, Steve and I'll get into our backgrounds here in a minute, but we came from the law enforcement side, but it, we do interviews. We're not just talking about a story. We're actually going to talk to the people who live the story. That's why we call it game of crimes. And that was pretty cool, Steve, when we were talking about this, I said, really, this is a, these are the players in the biggest game of all. I mean, Crime is really one of the biggest games there is, right? And it's been going on for centuries. And so what you're going to hear from is you're not going to hear so much from uh, me or especially not from Morgan because we don't want you to fall asleep during our show. But uh, you're actually going to hear from the people who live the cases that we're going to talk about. And we're not just talking about good guys and we're not just talking about DE agents or, or feds here in the United States. We're going around the world and we're also bringing in some bad guys and well, I guess, yeah, let's say former bad guys, okay, because they've seen the light. They've come over to the light side is the way we refer to Hallelujah. it. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. You know, <laughs> I'm reformed. Hallelujah. 
But it, this is uh, it's rather unique. Uh, you know, people that you may have heard of, you may have seen them in the movies. We're going to critique a lot of movies because we have the people that actually the movies were based on. Now, you know, not to mention Narcos on Netflix, the fourth time all top, you know, all time hit show come original contact coming out of Netflix. But that's why we're here. Narcos. And guess what? We will have some people are going to wonder, too, because Small Town Murder does it. They have a Patreon channel. You know, we're going to have a Patreon channel. And in fact, we have already recorded 12 episodes. 12 episodes with Steve and uh JP, Javier Pena. In fact, you guys, if you've been living in a rock, you know, in a cave, under a rock, I should say, or in a cave, JP and Steve and Murph, they were the inspiration for the hit series Narcos on Netflix. These are the guys who helped the government of Colombia and the real heroes. And I'm not saying that Steve will tell you that too. The real heroes are the soldiers and the policemen who gave their lives, who helped bring down the world's most wanted narco terrorist. Uh, this is these guys were the inspiration for the Netflix series, and you ask yourself why is it the fourth most popular? Because and this gets it the bonus content we get into why. In fact, uh, Steve, you can tease them a little bit. How many times did you turn down other offers before accepting the final one? <laughs> you know what we we turned down two movie producers, believe it or not, uh, simply because once we got into it, they had personal agendas. You know, one thing we've learned about uh, dealing with Hollywood and the stories that come out of there is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, you know. So when the third one came along, Eric Newman with uh, uh, his, you know, he's the he's the creator and executive producer of the Narcos series. Uh, he said exactly what we wanted to hear. And he's a man of his word. He's lived up to, to uh, everything he told us he would. So, so. We're going to save a lot of that for the bonus content. So if you guys want bonus content and we'll have a lot of good stuff, trust me. The stories I you will hear on one of the episodes, Steve says, "How did you know that?" Because <laughs> we won't tell you. You got to hear. You know, if you want, if you want, if you guys want the bonus content, you got to let us know. So there's great ways to find us. We're on Twitter, Game of Crimes uh, on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Instagram, Game of Crimes on Facebook. So if you can't find us, you're not trying hard enough. And then plus our new website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. And I'll tell you, we have a wicked, I've just seen it today. Steve has a connection down in New Zealand. Now, it's not quite Australian, it's New Zealand. They're a little flatter on their uh, A's. <laughs> but uh, Ollie down there. We, so, yeah, you might be wondering, this might, you might sound, say, this sounds suspiciously like Game of Thrones. Yeah, total, totally. Game of Crimes, evil is coming. In fact, if you type in evilistcoming.com into your web browser, guess where it brings you? Game yeah. of Crimes podcast. It brings you where you should be. That's where, where it you should you. be. Yeah. And we have the most wicked, awesome looking. You've seen the Game of Thrones throne, the chair, the Iron Throne. We have the Crime Throne. Wait till you see this thing. I saw the just the initial rendering of it today. It is fucking awesome. And just to give a shout out, Ollie Dale with virtually famous, uh, world renowned photographer and creator down in, in uh, New Zealand. Good, good, good friend of ours. So shout out to you, Ollie. And he was so good at Photoshopping one of the pictures. You guys were down where in Micronesia or something working on your other project. Mm -hmm. He took a picture with the hole there in the middle and he Photoshopped himself into there. And even you guys couldn't tell it had been Photoshopped. Right. I thought, what the hell? He wasn't sitting next to me, but there he is. <laughs> well, he might have been, Steve. You're just getting that old. You forget this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it had been a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, guys. So let us kind of give you a theory behind the show and, and our philosophy behind how we go after this. These are going to be 
There will be two-parters on some of these shows. I will tell you right now, Green River Killer with Dave Reichert is a two-parter. Um, when we talked to Abe Perez and Paul Crane, uh, the two DEA agents who helped capture El Chapo the second time, that's going to be a two-parter. Our philosophy is we go as long as it, we need to go to tell the story, and we really dig deep on we read the books, we watch the movies, we do open source research, and every now and then we call our confidential informants, and we say, what do you know about this person? What do you know about this dude? And then we embarrass them by surprising them with some very embarrassing information like you did with <laughs> Michelle Linhart. So we will talk about that in that episode. <laughs> yeah, Michelle, I love you. Sorry. <laughs> hey, man, you come on this podcast. And the disclaimer, this is a podcast about true crime. It's explicit, not only in the terms, but when we get Dominic Polifron on here, you better have your F-bomb filter on because this dude knows no other way to talk. Oh, my gosh. He even embarrassed me, and I've been a cop for 38 years. <laughs> Holy cow. He's in our trailer, too. So if you hear me talking about, is that huge, like with an H or with the Y, like huge? You know, so. That's why it's beeped up. (laughs) (laughs) And Dominic, but Dominic's a badass. Dominic's the guy who helped bring down Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. Yep. You know, the mob guy. So uh, we, I mean, that's what I'm saying. So between our contacts, we've been able to do this. So here's the way we approach the episodes, and you'll kind of see this. What we do is we really talk about what got you into this line of work, whether it's good guys or bad guys or girls. We say, so episode two will be George Young. George, now, I think we got, Steve, I think we got the final interview with George. I believe Um, we did. Yeah, he passed away May 5th. George was Pablo Escobar's business partner, responsible at one time for 80% of the cocaine in the U.S. Johnny Depp played him in the movie Blow. Um, and so we talked, how did you get into this? Why'd you get into this? And we go beyond what the movie does. We go beyond what a few books have been written. So we got the last, we got, think we got the last full interview with George. Same thing with you and JP. We, now we go much deeper in the bonus content, but we really get into some of the stories. We get beyond your book, Manhunters, which you can find by the way at deanarcos.com. That's Steve's and Javier's site. And you'll see us link to that on our webpage. So we talk about, we talk about why'd you get into this? And then we say, let's set the stage for the the story we're going to talk about. So, Steve, I'll pick on you and JP as an example. So when we talk about that, we talk about Colombia. What led to what was going on in Colombia? What led to the rise of Pablo? What led to um, the troubles they were having, you know, in the country? So we set the stage and we find out what it is you guys know. Then we get into the main event. You know, it's like Michael Buffer. Let's get ready to rumble the main event of the evening. <laughs> you know, so we get into talking about the main event. And that takes a big chunk of the time. And then we end up with, what are you doing now? You know, what, what kind of things are you working on now? Where is life taking you? So usually kind of those four parts. So we start off by what got you into this. Let's talk, let's set the context. Let's talk about uh, the actual case with Dave Reichert. That was, we're talking about 49 homicides at, you know, at that one point, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. A lot of work, a lot of discussion on that, because there's a lot of context for that. And then what are you doing now? So I think you know, I don't know of anybody who really does true crime interviews like to this extent. I think there's some, you've been on some of them, Steve, but I mean, most of them are what, 30 minute, maybe an hour. And they don't really, they're not, they're surface level. They don't really go deep, do they? No. And it's some of the people that we're going to have on our show uh, have been interviewed. You may have heard them, but probably not to the extent and the depth that we go. And if it takes, you know, if it takes two and a half hours, well, we learned from small town murders from Jimmy and James that, yeah, you put it out there, and it seems that that's very popular, and you want to hear the whole story. You just don't want the teasers. So we're kind of following their lead on that. Thank you, James and Jimmy from Small Town Murders and Crime and Sports. Yeah, man. Um, and uh, again, Sarah, James, Jimmy, you guys, you rock. You know, so we're going to make you guys proud. So one of the other things we're going to do too is we're going to have our own little take. You know, 
Steve, you're going to hear Steve and I bust each other's chops. We're going to have fun. <laughs> If you, got, if you got thin skin, this probably uh, isn't the show. You're to not on to. the right <laughs> podcast. And disclaimer, folks, you know, if you're offended by language, by f bombs, by you know stories of really bad stuff, I mean, we we when we start getting into this, there are bad things that happen to good people and bad things that happen to bad people, and it's. We talk about the Centro 93 bombing, you know, down in Bogota. We talk about what kind of things you've seen and I've seen over the years. So, yeah, so it's explicit. So, um, but but. But we take the cases seriously. We just don't take ourselves seriously. Absolutely. You know, we want to have a little bit of fun. But make no mistake, we respect the hell out of the people, out of our guests. Anybody who comes on the show gets our utmost respect. Uh, and it's like when we had George on there back in the day, Steve, you and I would have had no problem slapping cuffs on him. Right. You know, would have had no problem indicting him. Would have had, you know, but it's different. He served his time. He came out, and now we wanted to learn from him. We wanted to learn how did you do this. How was you, what was your psychology around? How did you get away? He got away with it for a long time. Now he got caught a few times. You will see a common thread in George's episode. Every time he got caught, he got screwed over. It was by a pilot who had flipped and was working for DEA. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of know what we're doing. Everybody thinks we don't, but hey. Yeah, you go after, go after the transportation, man. So, But you'll, you'll learn a lot, too, and you'll learn a lot from people, what, how they grew up with. But with the other thing, too, we want to have fun. Steve and I both come from, uh, we originally started off with small towns, you know, with policing. Where were you? Blue Crab, Blue Crust, Blue Smell? Where was uh, it? West keep Virginia? Keep it up. Keep it up there. Bluefield, West Virginia. You know, we had a 35... Population four. 35-man <laughs> police department. But the thing that, you know, the difference here was we were actually investigating crime. We weren't like the troopers out there writing tickets and working wrecks. Now, where did you like start being at? in where'd the top s- five for the state for felony arrest, arresting people wanted for murder and drug traffickers and... What's that, three? A day? Yeah. <laughs> Dream <laughs> on, brother. Dream <laughs> on. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, but no, I came from, I came from a small town too. Originally grew up in a very small town in Kansas. Uh, you know, my dad was military, moved around the world, lived in Iran. There was a big town, grew, spoke Farsi as a kid, um, but moved back here, but started off on a small department, you know, went to a state patrol. So we all had our beginnings and stuff, but then it's these stories we have collected over the years and not just our stories, but other people's stories. And rather than us repeating and telling what somebody has already said, we said, Hey, let's go out and find the people who know this. And that's and the in difference. In fact, we do, we, I will tell you this, when we talk to Abe Perez and Paul Crane on capturing El Chapo, uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, we're going to spend a lot of time on El Chapo. No, we, we talked a lot about some of the other cases. And I'm telling you, one of the biggest arrests ever made, I mean, that Paul uh, Crane will tell you about that they made, and I can't remember how many hundred kilos it was, Steve, like 800 or whatever it was. It, it all came from looking at a car and going, there's something fishy about that car. I won't, yeah. don't want to give away. But we, a lot of stories, the shootout they had. Oh, my God. Wait till you hear about what happened to those poor Hertz rental cars. <laughs> note, note, <laughs> note to you folks out there, if you're ever traveling where DEA is doing an operation, make sure you pay for the extra insurance. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> so, but we're going to have a lot of stuff. And guys, feel free to contact us on all of our socials on Instagram. We're going to try and stay as active as we can. We want to be responsive. Uh, on our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com, there's the contact form. Hey, if you guys have some ideas for funny stories, you're going to hear us reading some small town blotters here in a little bit. If you've got some funny stories you want to send us, we'll give you shout outs. We'll give you credit for that stuff. And when we get ready to launch Patreon and things like that, you know, we'll, we'll be sure to let you know. So we're taking a little extra time up front because we wanted to introduce everybody into what went into the making of Game of Crimes. But I think when we launch, Steve, we're going to drop the first two episodes we're going to launch. And the first one we're talking about today is you and JP. We're dropping also episode two, which is George Young, you know, right away. But here's the other thing, too. 
people are sitting here thinking, these are a couple of old white guys. What the hell? You know, we're just going to be talking a bunch of stuffy old white guys. Uh, au contraire, folks. We've, we've interviewed, uh, Steve just said earlier, Michelle Linhart. She was the first true female DEA agent to come up through the ranks and lead DEA. That's right. Right, Steve? Absolutely. Yep. Pam Barnum from Canada. Uh, she was a, a an investigator for the Ontario Provincial Police, OPP. She worked drug crimes. You ought to hear some of the horrific stories. She became a federal prosecutor. We just got through interviewing Sherry Oz, uh, the special agent in charge in Phoenix for the DEA field office out there, basically runs all. And when you hear the stories about the opioids and fentanyl, um, but the one thing you're going to have to hear, I got to come up with, with Steve's stripper name. Steve gets a stripper name. <laughs> And there's a reason why you're going to have to listen to that episode. But we're we're getting folks. This is not just us talking to guys that look like us and sound like us. We're going across the board. Steve has some folks lined up. I think we probably have at least 18 episodes in the can already. I mean, things that we've done and talked to, and we're branching out. We've got uh, not quite the Colombian hitman James was talking about, but we do have somebody who is very high ranking. We're working on. We don't want to. We don't, we haven't solidified that interview yet. But if we do, it will be most likely in prison, right? Or yeah. we'll have to get him out of prison to do it. Well, that well that that one is um, the Mexican mafia. Yep. The one you're talking about, that guy, he is ready to go. I mean, he is ready to oh, go. That's it's, right. We got to talk with him. He's not in prison though, right? He's out of prison now. Right? He's done his time. He's he's not on probation or parole. He was involved just to tease you a little bit. Involved in the cocaine business coming out of Colombia for 25 years and was captured with 7,000 kilos coming out of Venezuela. That's so, all? That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, I do that in a week, man. You know, even in Colombia, 7,000 kilos is not personal use. No. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I want to say, too, uh, Morgan, real quick, is to our listeners out there, this is for you. You know, we, we know these people. We know their stories. But we want you to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So we need to hear your feedback. Do you like what you're hearing? Do you like the format? Are we going too long, too short? Are we being too goofy like we're being right now? And we're being like this because we're extremely excited to finally get this thing. You just don't know how hard we've Steve has a pair of Depends on. That's how serious this is. Oh, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. I can't even call time out for a pee break anymore. So, uh, But please, please, you know, give us your feedback because we want to send out to you what you want to hear. So we've gone long on this episode, but uh, the intro, but this, we won't do this in all the other episodes, but we just wanted to really kick this thing off right, let you know what we're doing, what we're thinking, how to reach us. You know, and the other thing too is um, just make sure, like I said, give us your feedback. But the one thing I will say, Steve, I am, it, it just, uh, this is, this is how much of an audience, how much of a following small town murder has when they put this out and they started saying, Hey people go hit the downloads. We had thousands of people. I mean, thousands of people already go hit stuff. And then when I pulled up, I went to Apple and I pulled up the rankings. This is folks, we haven't even launched, haven't officially launched it. This is just in less than 24 hours. Already had people listen to our trailer. 20 or 20 so folks already gave us five star reviews on Apple. We don't know why it makes a difference, but apparently five star means you're the shit. You're the bomb. And it raises us in the rankings and it exposes us to more people who need to hear these awesome stories. So I will tell you, there's some people by the name of like Road Goddess, uh, Nanners99, Quilt Buzz, uh, that guy you met once. All of those folks, they actually wrote comments. They left us uh, the ratings on there. So we want to say thank you to you guys. Thank you very much. But just again, you know, go and rate us. 
share this podcast with your friends. We also, when you go to our website, you'll see that what pops up is a mailing list too. So we have a mailing list we're putting together. That way you can tell us how you want us to contact you. But if you want to also, we'll, we'll, as we start doing road shows in the future, as we start having new things coming out, and we're going to have some bonus content. And the other thing, Steve, and I thought about doing too, if you guys are interested, is kind of give... Go. Uh, we'll do some YouTube stuff, some live stuff. We'll bring some people in, you know, so you can ask questions. We'll do like an Ask Me Anything like Reddit does. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at doing some of those things, you know, on a monthly basis. But what we may do is maybe do uh, like a YouTube, uh, you know, and post it on the channel. But we're here. You can see us talking, but we'll be talking about the case or maybe some ancillary things around the case, but kind of leading you up to the next episode. So, you know, we're 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 open to finding a way to give you the best experience you want. But I guess, you know what we're here to do? We're here to entertain you. We're here to give you insight into things you maybe never heard of, let you know what kind of things really go on in the world out there. And at the same time, we just want you to have some fun. So this yeah. is your captain. Sit back, relax, buckle yourself in because Steve, let me ask you something. Are you ready to play the game of crimes? Let's go, brother. We've been waiting too long. Let's go. All right, let's go. Before we get into the episode, Steve, I got I got something I'm going to pull on you. And Steve and I are going to kind of rotate this week by week. So I just want to read some small town police blotters. Just when we said we came from small towns, wait till you see some of the reports that made it in. So let me start with this first one, Steve. I want to read just a few and just get your reaction to them and see what you think, okay? Okay. So this one, 12.42 a.m. on a Monday in the 200 block of Howard Street. A man reported someone had used his password and hacked into his Farmville account on Facebook.com and that as a result he had lost a year's worth of work and all his crops. He was told this was a civil matter, not criminal. <laughs> Have you ever played, did, did you ever see that game on Facebook called Farmville to where you're a farmer and you grow things? No, this sounds like uh, Big Bang Theory. <laughs> sounds like Sheldon <laughs> Cooper just lost all his intellectual oh, property. Well, Harry, if you like that one, you'll like this one. Jeez. 4.42 p.m., a caller in the 500 block of West Dunbar Avenue reported that her neighbor was making banging noises and screaming, I'm going to explicative kill you. This is in the paper. Police made contact with a neighbor who said he was threatening his roommate's cat because it (laughs) spilled water on the carpet. Police determined the man didn't actually mean any harm to the cat since it was in the bathroom for a quote, and air quotes with my fingers, timeout. When officers arrived. Oh, jeez. It's amazing. <laughs> you can't make this crap up, you know? Oh, oh. Here's one. This one's a little longer. This one's, this one, it's not so much a small town police botter. This, but I, it, I thought of this, and the first person I thought might have written this might have been George Young. It says, Employment Wanted. The headline is Former Marijuana Smuggler. And it says, having successfully completed a 10-year sentence, incident-free, for importing 75 tons of marijuana into the United States, I'm now seeking a legal and legitimate means to support myself and my family. He even lists his business experience, Steve. He says, he owned and operated a successful fishing business, multi-vessel, one airplane, one island and processing facility. And he owned and operated a fleet of truck, tractor, trailer trucks conducting business in the western United States. Did you know that during this time, he co-owned and participated in the executive level management of 120 people worldwide in a successful pot smuggling smuggling venture with revenues in excess yearly of $100 million? Oh, yeah. Now there's somebody you can trust. Come on in. Oh, my God. Employment wanted. (laughs) 
I guess he's never heard of background checks. Uh, oh, know. my God. But who knows? Okay. He, he might qualify for security clearance nowadays. Who knows? <laughs> well, let me find one more here. There was a good one here. Let's see. Uh, uh, here's a good one. This one reminds me of one of the stories you did uh, when you crapped your pants when you came around the corner. Remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 2.58 p.m. Forget. The Learning Center on Hanson Street reports a man across the way stands at his window for hours watching the center, making parents nervous. So you know what the police did, Steve? What? They investigated. Guess what they found? What? Police ID the subject as a cardboard cutout of <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Well, he said he'd be back. He came back every day. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Let me see here. Oh, and this is the one. Uh, this this would be grounds for divorce if this happens, Steve. That's all I'm telling you. This next one, grounds for divorce. Are you talking about between me and you or what here? <clears throat> no, no. Between me and the wife, if oh, she I ever did you. this. Yeah, okay. Police okay. solved the case of the missing bacon. A Grand Rapids resident told police last week that someone had entered his home during the night and taken five pounds of bacon from the refrigerator. Upon, upon further investigation, police discovered his wife had gotten up for a late night snack, but was afraid to admit it. Five pounds of bacon? <laughs> what did his wife look like? Five pounds of bacon. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, my. Five pounds? That's, good Lord. Oh, my God. Oh. That's like so many... That's like the story of the guy who who spent you know uh, thousands and thousands of dollars on these uh, top notch cigars and insured them with an insurance company, and then he smoked all those cigars with his buddies and filed an insurance claim. Well, you knew that's what's going to happen, right? So what did the insurance company do, claim company do? They charged you with arson. Arson. <laughs> There's some really smart people out there. Oh man, I'll tell you. And last one here, I just had it right here. Let's see. Um, Oh, yeah. Steve, th this would be interesting. This would be an interesting case to work. Then we'll uh -oh. get into the story. 1.33 uh -oh. p.m., Sonora. A man came to the sheriff's department to find out how to legally kill a person who was harassing him. Wow. And their answer was? Um, well, I think, sir, uh, press hard. You're making five coffees. You know, <laughs> and look to the front, turn to the right, you know. Uh, would that, uh, you know, so if, it, if it's conspiracy to commit murder, I wonder if that would be considered the overt act. <laughs> yeah, but it has to be with another person. So guys, we're giving you some insight. So you can't, just can't have a conspiracy with yourself. It has to be with another person. So, but if the cop was wow. smart, he would have said, Hey, I'll help you. Okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> we need to interview, introduce him to Lou Velozzi. Which oh man. Oh my God. Oh you yeah. You guys will be introduced to Lou Velozzi down the road. He's a, Oh, he's got some fantastic Sal stories. Nunziato. So yeah. you're going to meet, you're going to meet the code name for Lou Velozzi. He's got some great stories. Yeah, he does. Oh, well, Tough Hey, let's guy. get into episode one guys. So we've, we've teased you again. We promise you another, none, none of our other intros will go this long, but now we get in. Now we start playing the game of crimes episode one. So we decided to turn the tables and this is where I invited Steve and JP on to become the guests, and I would become the sole host for the show. But we went deep on this, as deep as you can go for, and I think we went about two and a half hours. This will be a single episode, about two and a half hours. But Steve, give people a little insight, too. In other words, you wrote the book. Tell them about the book. Tell them about the series. But tell them why interviews are so important. Like when we do podcasts, what's the difference between like just doing a quick 30-minute one and kind of the depth that we did? Well, you just can't get all the stories out there. Uh, you know, Javier and I, this is our sixth year of having a road show. We travel around the world and we tell the true story about Pablo Escobar and what happened and 
Um, you know, a lot of corporate events, they want us to go for 45 minutes. Well, you can't tell many stories in 45 minutes. And it seems like that's what the attendees always want to hear because, you know, in the evenings after the, after we've done our presentation, people inundate us with questions about, well, I heard about this. I heard about that. How'd you handle that other thing? And, uh, so these in-depth interviews give us an opportunity to tell you so much more from what went on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the, even the book, uh, and we helped write the book. We were smart enough to hire a ghost writer, Isabel Vincent, to uh, she, she's the professional, to write the book for us. But we spent hours and hours on the phone, uh, flew to New York twice to meet with her in person, answering questions on the Internet. It's just the detail that you get to include there. And even in a book, you can't include it. So that's the cool thing about these long style interviews that we're doing. Uh, you know, uh, Morgan knows most of our story. He's hung out with us. Uh, we've we've learned that he's as big an idiot as we are. So we all kind of get along well together. Hey, right hey, uh, we, cops have a type. We I want to be the number one idiot. I want to be the best idiot out okay. there. You just got it. You just thank you. You are the number one idiot. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, see, he thinks that's an award, so go with it, folks. Go with it. I'm a it. Kansas prom boy, man. We want to be number one. <laughs> so do you still have – I wonder if you still have your slippers there, Dorothy. Uh, you do. You click them together three times, and you turn into an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the game of crimes. Welcome to the game of crimes. All right, speaking of that, so, hey, look, we've teed this up. I want you guys to listen to this because what you hear in here is one-twelfth of what you hear in the bonus content. And if you want to hear yeah. the bonus content, if you think it's worth it, let us know. We'll, we'll put the Patreon channel together. We'll put a PayPal together if you just want to just do a one-off donation and, and uh, help us continue to build this out. But I will tell you, whatever we get, whatever you folks decide uh, that you want to support us with, it goes back into making the website better. It gets, gets into getting equipment so that we can go. There's going to be some places we have to go visit. We cannot simply do this over the Internet. Um, we, we will actually have to physically go visit some people because, like, the guy from the Mexican Mafia is still in prison. Got to get them out. You know, we may have to travel to an undisclosed location. You know, there's a couple folks we're talking to that um, one didn't actually qualify for witness protection. It's the one we talked to Sherry about, Sherry Oz. But mm-hmm. um, but they have a green light from the, from the Mexican Mafia on them. So if they're ever found and tar- found by a Mexican Mafia member— uh, it's a green light to take them out to kill them. So, you know, we've got some people look to this day with death threats over their head. I mean, these aren't these aren't kiddos. These are serious people. If they find you and they have a green light, you're dead. Yeah, these these people are even uh, more dangerous than all the jealous husbands that Javier left behind in Colombia. So, you know, we may have <laughs> which, to get a security detail. Which it's just go read the about section on the webpage, Javier. It's like uh, I'm a traveling man. If there was an old song called I'm a traveling man. All right. Well, let's get into it, Steve. We are ready to play Game of Crimes. Let's get into episode one, the real story of how you and Javier helped capture Pablo Escobar. Of course, with my help, I came a few years later, but had I not been there eight years later, the country would have descended into chaos and we would not have been able to tell this story. Here we go. You know what I should have had playing? I should have had playing a little Latin music. Kind of like the theme from Narcos, but we get our ass sued for that. I am going to insert into this some music I found that kind of sounds like Narcos. Why? Because we're kicking off Game of Crimes, Evil is Coming, with probably one of the most evil people ever to walk the face of the earth. And no, I'm not talking about Steve Murphy or Javier Pena. <laughs> we're talking about Pablo Escobar, one of the most, I mean, literally one of the most evil people to ever walk the earth. 
And what we're going to do today is um, I'm turning the tables a little bit because in the future episodes, Javier is going to be our special, what we call our special agent in residence. In case of emergency break glass, we'll bring him out for some of our special bonus content and as special events. Steve is actually going to be the co-host with me. But for this episode, since we're kicking off with one of the most um, amazing stories you've ever heard, we're going to start off. Steve is going to be the guest on this one, and then we'll transition to him and I being co-hosts. So, Steve, did you catch all that? Did I go too fast? You good? You did, but I'll, I'll read it in the notes later. And, uh, yeah. and thank you for having me as a guest on my own show. You're all right, Morgan. I don't care what Javier says. I uh, man, you know, it's, it's magnanimous of me. It's pretty decent of me. <laughs> I'm surprised you know what that word means, magnanimous. I'm surprised you can spell it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I can spell it. I can say it. Yeah. Well, you can see how this show, you can see how this is going to go. And folks, what makes us different? And we're going to kind of stake out this position. Um, I think what really makes us different about this podcast that we're doing is that we don't use news articles. We don't use video clips. We don't use other news sources. Our source are the people who lived it. Our source are the people who did these investigations. That's the men and the women. Uh, and including, guess what? Coming up after this one, guess who we've got coming up after this? Pablo Escobar's business partner, George Young. So we've actually got the cook, the crooks, the cooks. <laughs> this this is not thing. Gordon Ramsay, you know. <laughs> we've got the crooks, we've got the criminals, we've got the cops, we've got the convicts, we've got authors. We're going to have a whole range of people. But the most important thing is you're going to hear from the people who did it. You're going to hear from the people who were there. Not, not, I heard from a friend who heard it from a friend. It's not an REO Speedwagon song, right? This, I'm dating myself. So you youngsters learn this up, right? So that's what that's that's what's going to make this different, and no better way to kick off, uh, you know, game of crimes, and no better way to kick this off talking about Pablo Escobar than Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. So let me officially welcome you to my podcast for this first episode. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We appreciate you letting us be here. And and JP, now that we got your technical issues fixed, you're on board too now, right? I'm ready, buddy. Thanks again for fixing my <laughs> computer. <laughs> for a while there, I thought we were going to be a no show here. Yeah. No, don't worry about that. All right. So let's kick this off. Now, guys, just to let you know, we have 12 episodes of Going Deep with Stephen Javier, where we tell you the stories you've never heard before. That's going to be in our bonus content. We're going to let you know when that uh, gets published and where you can find it at. This one, what we're going to do is we're going to recap those 12 episodes. And it's, guys, you got to strap yourself in. This is going to be fun. Uh, this is going to be seat of your pants type of stuff. You're going to hear the stuff very few people ever get to hear. We're going to talk about from how Javier and Steve got started in law enforcement, how they ended up in Colombia, um, you know, what happened after Pablo turned himself in the first time, what happened when he escaped the second time. And we're going to go through all of that. And then we're going to talk about how did the series Narcos come about on Netflix. By the way, if I remember right, Steve, you were telling me, I think it's public information now, right? But didn't Narcos end up becoming the third or fourth most popular series ever in Netflix history? Yeah, according to Time Magazine, Morgan, it came in number four of all time uh, original content shows coming from Netflix. So that's just pretty damn good. You are in rarefied air, my friend. And obviously it had nothing to do with your looks. Thank God Boyd Holbrook was available <laughs> to play you. <laughs> hey, and Pedro you know, Pascal, too, for Javier there. <laughs> just so you know, when we get into those bonus, those 12 bonus episodes, we've never... Even in our shows, our, our worldwide keynote speaking tour, we don't go into that kind of type of depth. That's the first time we've ever done that. 
And a lot of the listeners, you know, and this was the most frequently question we get asked on all of our shows is, yes, we're going to cover Javier's sex life in this 12 bonus episode. So you got to come in and find you, out the truth about that. You have to. And I just got to say that I think I am a little better looking than Pedro Pascal. Right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> don't, hey, don't look at me, pal. <laughs> nah, Pe- hey, Pedro Pascal is a great looking guy and uh, just a great, uh, great person. And uh, just we and we hit it off uh, as soon as we met each other. Well, and I do see some resemblance there too. So, I mean, you know, there's some, uh, but we're going to get into that. We're going to save that because you know what we're going to do, as they say, like in the Bible, in the beginning, right? So in the beginning, and let's not go back to you being a babe in swaddling clothes there, Steve. So, uh, Mm -hmm. but you and uh, JP, but really, you know, (laughs) you started off your law enforcement career actually in a very small town in uh, West Virginia, right? I did. And believe it or not, that was in 1975. Uh, became a police officer with a little uh, police department in Bluefield, West Virginia, the very southernmost city in the uh, the state of West Virginia. 35-man department back at that time. I think they're down probably in the mid-20s now. Uh, but, you know, I thought I was on top of the world. I was 19 well, years hell, old. Hell, you couldn't even own a gun at that point. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's the funny thing. You know, we had to, uh, the city provided your uniforms and that kind of stuff, but you had to provide your own, your leather gear, which is your gun belt and your own weapon. And I wasn't old enough to buy a gun. I wasn't even old enough to buy bullets. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the ironic thing. I could, I had the authority to enforce the law, you know, and I mean, you never want to shoot somebody, but should that be required, you had the authority to do that, but I couldn't buy the gun. It's like you couldn't buy beer, you know? <laughs> oh, I remember when I was a state trooper, um, at a division headquarters, we had a supply closet. They knew well enough not to let any trooper anywhere near that supply closet because stuff would disappear. But guess who had the key to the supply closet? Oh, you don't. The janitorial staff, the people with the lowest, you know, <laughs> clearance, the lowest pay, they had the key to the supply closet. But anyway, but, you know, I digress. Hey, and Javier, you started off your law enforcement career kind of in a unique way. It was death row, baby. Yep, yep, I did. Uh, and it was a uh, Texas Department of Corrections to the famous Ellis unit where uh, death rolls was, uh, you know, being housed. And I think it's still being housed there. But I learned uh, a lot. And uh, I tell people my first uh, day on the job, I was assigned uh, to guard the prisoners at famous death row. <laughs> that was in for a surprise. And uh, remember the first time I'm up there, somebody yelled. I ran out yelling. <laughs> <I said, laughs> <laughs> Threw the clipboard dotted. I was out of there. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, well, I'm glad to see you got over that later because if you'd run away in Colombia, I could I can imagine that. It looks like a Monty Python episode. Run away. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that but, is but true. But real quickly, what was that? I mean, what was that like going in there? What was your expectation of what you thought it was going to be, and how much different was it from that? You know what? I had no idea. I, I had never worked in a correctional institution. Then this was a uh, an internship from uh, from my university. But I, I I went in. I wanted to learn, and you know what? I learned the hard way. I learned uh, the tough uh, ways of this uh, vicious criminals. You know, I, I I remember there was about thirty guys on death row. One guy who had poisoned his kids on Halloween to to take the insurance money. I mean, how would you kill your own kids? Another guy who 
helped out in the uh, in the famous uh, Fred Gomez Carrasco escape in Huntsville, which uh, he held the uh, hostages and tried to escape by putting all the hostages in uh, two uh, two blackboards. And uh, all of a sudden, there's a big firefight. A lot of people get killed. Uh, one of the survivors who helped him, I had him. So it was a vicious uh, education for me and education from the, from the baddest uh, people uh, in the world. Well, hate to say that was almost like uh, you're starting your training because when you get to Columbia, and we'll, we'll talk about later, I mean, it's a lot of the same thing, right? You run into... Right, horrendous right. scenes. Yep, yep. firefights. Yeah, exactly. In Colombia, again, it was uh, it was different because I mean, you know, uh, death row. This inmates are already in there, but knowing what they have done, yeah, that's what just I mean. Yeah, a different uh, factor. Yeah, and Steve, for you, you were on the police department for a while, but then you got this brilliant idea. You wanted to guard trains. <laughs> you know what? The truth is, uh, I mean, six years with the police department. I started out in 1975 at $9,600 a year. That was the salary. By the time six years had gone by, the salary wasn't much higher than that. I mean, you worked as many off-duty jobs as you could. I worked as an electrician's helper. I had a security contract for the local college for their sporting events. You know, you were just, I mean, you always worked. You got as much overtime as you could, if special details, whatever it might be. So while I was in college, I'd gotten to be friends with uh, a former Bluefield police officer that was a railroad cop. Uh, railroad detective is what they called him back then to give you a fancy title. And when you do your research, you found out that they were making twice as much as I was making as a city cop working 40 hours a week. So I applied, and, and through his connections, it, it turned out years later when I applied, he was the captain for the railroad police uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, for the Norfolk and Western Railroad Company, which is now Norfolk Southern Railroad. Uh, so he, he hired me on, and it was – <laughs> I hey, this is nothing against uh, my railroad law enforcement brothers and sisters out there, but the job that I was given was like a glorified security security guard sitting at the end of a pier guarding this millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment, the coal-loading pier at Lambers Point in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and that's not what I wanted to be. That's not why I went to college, you know. Well, Steve, the burning question is, is during all that time, did anybody ever steal a train? <laughs> and nobody stole that pier either. <laughs> and you know what? You were, it's funny. It's funny because the, uh, you know, you had to stop and challenge people coming on and off the pier. And this is an operating pier. And of course, the workers, right. you recognize them. But this car comes up with an elderly couple one time. So I get out and stop them. And, and I didn't even tell this in the bonus episode. I stop them and I said, may I help you? And, and they said, yeah, we want to drive down the pier. And I said, I'm sorry, this is for employees. It's restricted access. And uh, he said, well, I do work for the railroad. And, and I said, well, what do you do on the railroad? And he said, I'm the CEO. I said, right. Can I see your driver's license, please? It was the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, you're for, as Steve, formerly working for the Virginia Norfolk <laughs> Southern Railroad. Well, then I had to guard a post down in the water, you know, so I, I got wet every day. But uh, no, it was, uh, you know, you just did your job. Yeah. Well, and so Javier, but you, you, I mean, that was kind of a college thing for you, right? But you eventually ended up going to work for the sheriff's office uh, after college, right? Right. After after college, I got a job in uh, Laredo, which is Webb County. And Laredo sits on the border between Mexico and Texas. The other 
town across in uh, in Mexico is uh, the famous Nuevo Laredo, which later on became famous for the Setas uh, being headquartered uh, there. The Setas were the uh, armed group of the trafficking cartels who enforced and killed and did all sorts of stuff. But anyway, so I hired on in 1977. And again, like Steve, I think I was making, it was like, I think like, 10,000 a year. But, you know, what helped me as I was working at nighttime and uh, I'd go to college, I'd finish up my degree in Laredo during the day. So that was, you know, really, uh, and I lived with my grandparents, which is one of the greatest time, uh, you know, great memories I'll ever have. I always had a home cooked meal and, uh, you know, I love my grandparents. So I had it made, you know, I'd work at night, go to school during the day, come back, sleep for four or five hours, and you hit it again so you so, learn uh, you learn the hard way <laughs> when did you start partying though oh that we had you know what we had four days on and four days off they they said that oh was later God. on Ill- yeah illegal but we would used to work i think it was 10 hours uh, a shift but wow four days on and then four days off that was that was huge back then until later on towards the end of my uh, career in the sheriff's office I said they couldn't do that anymore it was illegal or something but I had a great time four uh, days off you can do a lot of stuff well and I remember <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about it was um, it was a uh, same thing happened to me is that you could only work uh, 171 hours in a 28 day period and then they had to, all, all of this stuff. they took all the fun out of it when they yeah. started putting rules around it man right so yeah, so, Steve, let's talk. I mean, so so now you're guarding railroad cars, and you know, as we have established clearly, none of those have been stolen. That's right. Um, but what what made you finally decide to uh, uh, join DEA? What 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 prompted you to do that? Well, you know, I, was, I spent a couple of years working down in in uh, Norfolk, and uh, I had two sons from a prior marriage that still lived in Southern West Virginia, and I wanted to get back close, you know, closer to them because it was a several hour drive to go home to visit. So I was able to uh, snag a transfer back to Bluefield. Uh, we only had, I think, Captain the Chief, we only had like four railroad police officers working out of that office. And we covered, I don't know, 20, 30 counties from that little office. Well, anyway, I'm back in Bluefield where, you know, that's that was my original police department. So I'm friends with all the cops there. One night, uh, as I'm checking the railroad property, I hear gunshots just a couple blocks away. So, you know, being a nosy cop, I go over to find out what's going on, and down this hill, I see a unif- I see a marked cruiser, a Bluefield cruiser down there, and a police officer's hiding behind it, and there's a guy in a third-story window shooting down at him, and he's shooting back at the building. So I go down to back him up. turns out that um, the man in the building doing the shooting had come home and found another man in bed with his wife, and as that guy's running away, the, the shooter shoots him right in the butt. Yeah, right in the butt cheek. So the Wasn't guy that a makes Frank it. Zappa song, shot in the butthole, in the butthole? <laughs> so the, you know, the victim now f- makes it to the street, but he's, he can't run any farther, you know. So he's laying down, and, and what the shooter is doing is leaning out the window. He's not shooting at the cop. He's trying to kill the guy that was he caught in bed with his wife, you know. So I, I make my way up there to the police officer, and I'm like, um, I said, what's going on? And you know, he gives me a, a two-second version there, and I said, you got back up on the way? And he's like, no, I haven't. He was a rookie. He didn't, hadn't even called for help yet. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> if you're in a I'm gun sorry. battle. Somebody starts shooting at me. The first thing, I'm I'm like Javier. If I can't run away, the next thing I'm doing is I'm yelling for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I ran over and grabbed the victim, and I drug him into a recessed doorway so he wouldn't get killed and got back out there with the cop. And, you know, 
we exchanged gun battle. Help showed up. It went on for a little while, and, and finally the shooter gave up. He surrendered. Um, I don't know how many shots were fired at him in that window. We never hit him, but we killed that building dead in hell that night. So, you know, you stay there as the detectives come out, process the crime scene. Well, this is a Saturday night, Sunday morning type thing. So I get back in the office about 6.30, and I call our chief, and I said, hey, just let you know I was involved in shooting last night and told him what happened, you know, gave him the Reader's Digest version. He said, don't you go anywhere. I'm on my way in. I said, okay. So he comes in, and, and make a really long story short, he is upset with me because I got involved in a shooting that had nothing to do with railroad business. Well, I told him, I said, chief, I'm the only railroad dick on duty, you know, for 26, 30 counties. When I need help, who do I call? I call the local police, you know? So when a police officer needs help, if I can help him, you can bet your sweet bippy I'm going to. So that's when he told me, he said, I'm going to get you fired for this. And, and when he said that, I said, uh, you know what, Chief, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. Given the same set of circumstances, I wouldn't change a damn thing. And on my way home, you know, that morning, I'm thinking, this is not the agency I want to work for. Now, the bosses in the in the railroad police were all former cops, and our chief was not. He'd been a railroader his entire life. So, uh, you know, they they came to my, you know, they saw my side of the story. I was given accommodation by the city for helping another police officer, uh, so I had no problems, but nothing happened to my chief. They let him continue on in the same capacity. And of course, you know, now I'm his butt boy. He wants to treat me like crap. So um, that's what gave me the incentive to get out of there. Well, one of the other railroad police officers was Pete Ramey, one of my best friends, former Virginia state trooper, had worked on a DEA task force out of Roanoke, Virginia, told me stories about working undercover and working narcotics. And I always thought that was kind of exciting. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to try that. Well, I, I applied, and it took two years to get the job, but uh, I think I think DEA probably needed a token hillbilly, and that was me, so they brought me on board. <laughs> well, my understanding, too, before I ask JP his journey there, is that you were a big whiner. You whined and complained. You drove all the way to D.C. to whine and complain to DEA that you weren't getting hired fast enough. You, you can admit that now, can't you? Oh, absolutely. You know, but when you take a job, I expect you to do your damn job and the recruiter wasn't doing his job or somebody wasn't doing their job. I'm not going to say it was a recruiter because when I met with him, he got me on. By God, you need to be hiring me. So let's get on this now, people. All right. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I had somebody ask me that one time. Do you know who I am? Sir, you know, that's an onset of dementia. I'm going to have to report you to the driver's license bureau. Um, Talk about you, JP. What was your What was your path? You're, you're you're down there. You're living large, living with your grandparents. Four days on, four yep. days off. You got to be getting yourself, you know, in a little bit of social trouble there. But you're having fun. Yep. What I'm, made you decide that you wanted to go to DEA? Well, you know, uh, my story's a little different uh, than Steve's. You know, I did not even know what DEA was. In fact, I had to ask somebody what 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 the initials stood for. <laughs> uh, but anyway, with the sheriff's office, yeah, I, I was doing a lot of stuff. I started working at the at the jail, then. You know, got out to the patrol, and you know we had the border, a uh, lot of uh, human trafficking at that time, and uh, so basically, uh, I was with the sheriff's office seven years. As I mentioned, I was making I think like ten thousand a year. Anyway, towards the end, uh, I had transferred. It was an A and M branch in Laredo, so I was getting close to uh, graduating when I see uh, an announcement on the bulletin board that DEA was hiring, and I always remember. Remember seventeen thousand a year. I said, "How much? That's a lot of money. Seventeen thousand a year. I'm making I can buy a ten 
about beer with right. that. Right, yeah. 10,000. So I started asking what DEA was about, what the, you know, and I like, man, this is kind of a, so I applied. And, and you know what, uh, circumstances, you know, timing is everything, right? As we all know in our jobs, in our careers. At that point in my life, I was, I had some, uh, Personal problems, personal, they're funny now, but it wasn't funny back then. Basically, I, you know, I have never admitted it, but I think I, I think I have to. I, uh, I was supposed to get married and I called it off, uh, well, about 30 minutes before the wedding. Uh, <laughs> as Which, I, by late, the way, we later, go into excruciating detail in the bonus content. Right. I have never <laughs> mentioned this since I was, uh, running there, ran for about three months. I remember getting drunk at a bar. I was crying to this guy. I told him my story about leaving this girl. <laughs> the guy says, instead of sympathy, what? That only happens in the movies, man. <laughs> well, it happened in real life. Anyway, I, was, I wanted to get out of Laredo, and uh, DEA was hiring, and uh, all of a sudden, it was like, uh, uh, you know, and uh, it took about a year and a half, but uh, then I started getting excited. Hey, this is maybe a good career for me, uh, and I only... My, my my purpose in DA was say do two or three years, uh, then get back to the Laredo area. You know, I had a lot of connections there, and uh, those two or three years uh, after I hired on with DA, that two to three year stay that I was going to do turned into thirty years. So I think uh, I liked uh, my career at DA, and uh, you know, that's just like I said, it was all timing. Speaking of timing, um, you know, like I say, I, I hate to keep teasing you folks. Like, so we go into this, you know, we could, this, uh, this episode can only be so long. And that's why I said we have over 12 hours of bonus content on the other stuff, but we'll get into it. But in the Academy, I, I just want to tell a couple quick Academy, you guys tell a couple quick Academy stories. Um, Steve, you fancy yourself as being a pretty good shot. And being a pretty good shot got your ass into trouble. In fact, one of the fun things you get to do at the academy when you piss off, you know, one of the instructors or the people is you get to write a memo. Tell oh, us yeah. about your memo, Steve. <laughs> you know, the first time I told me to write a memo, I didn't even know what the heck they were talking about. Or what's a memo? You know, I write reports. But um, in DEA, when you go to the academy, they the instructors treat you as if you've never uh, fired a weapon in your life. And I was, uh, I had been involved in a lot of uh, law enforcement competition shooting. I was on the railroad pistol team, which was, you know, not tooting my own horn, but that was a very highly competitive uh, competition to get involved with. Um, so when they got out there, you know, they were shooting revolvers back then. So they had us on the five yard line, which is, you can almost reach out and touch your target at five yards. And they said, okay, fire six rounds, slow fire. And that's just so you can learn about the recoil when you pull the trigger and all that stuff. Well, at five yards, I've shot six rounds, and I had one hole. And so the instructor comes running up. He's like, what the hell do you think that is? I said, uh, that's one hole. He said, where's the other five rounds? I said, I put them all through the, same, the same hole. hole. I mean, <laughs> it was a little bit bigger than, the, than a single bullet hole. He said, you think you're being cute, don't you? I'm like, no, I just... You know, I'm shooting for marksmanship here. <laughs> he said, you know what? If I was scoring that that target, you'd get credit for one round because that's the only hole I can count. And I said, okay, I got you. So the next time we shoot more and I put a few rounds in the left shoulder, a few rounds in the right shoulder, and I spread them out a little bit. And he's like, he comes running up again. He's like, oh, now you think you're a smart ass. Huh? You think that's funny? 
I said, what do you want here, pal? And he said, I want you to write a memo why you can't follow instructions. So I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> and it kind of went downhill from there, but it, we got around it. <laughs> uh, now, now, Javier, you were a good kid at the academy. You didn't have to write any memos, did you? No, nah, no, nah, because, you know, I was scared shitless, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was so scared. You know, I'd come from a small sheriff's office, and you know what? The first day, they scared the hell out of you. Uh, if you flunk two tests throughout the, the training, you're out of here. If you don't pass your physical exercises, your shooting, you're out of here. It was uh, scary. I mean, it was when you get there, and I always remember there was a uh, another uh, cadet from a previous class that was going through and he came in and just scared the hell out of everybody saying it was tough that nobody was you know that there was going to be maybe like 50 percent was not going to make it i mean you know so i I was like and i my my deal was wow if i get fired what what am i gonna do so with me it was just i was studying i was working hard i was learning because the drug business i had done small stuff but you know when uh, you come on with dea you know dea goes after the biggest and the baddest uh, people around organizations which i didn't know much about the conspiracy laws the statues the di- all the different drugs so it, it took me a while to uh, learn uh, to learn the drug business. Well, you've learned it well, my friend. Um, <clears throat> just, just, I was just wondering how you were supporting your current lifestyle with the Lamborghini out front and the Maserati. So we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Hey, but finally, let's, we're going to close out on the Academy here by talking about Steve, where you thought, where you wanted to go, where you thought you were going and where you actually ended up at. And there was a whole ceremony behind this Sonny Crockett. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny cause you keep bringing these things up and you can see we start smiling cause it just brings back mostly good memories, but. Well, Steve, uh, we're on a podcast. Nobody can see you smiling. Uh, you can, you can. Morgan. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Morgan. So, and the, in DEA, when I came on, you know, the ceremony was, uh, you, you got out of your, your, uh, daily uniform, class uniform, which was, uh, you know, we had the, the cargo pants and a, and uh polo shirts with DEA on it. And you had to wear a suit to class that day. Well, previous to that, they had asked you to put down five offices that you would like to work in. That doesn't matter. That doesn't mean you're going to get one of those five offices. They just want to know where you want to go. So I had put down my five picks were Norfolk, Virginia, Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, and Miami, because you had to include a division office in there. And Miami was a division office, and that's in DEA jargon. So, um, you know, when you're, tie- when you're in class that day with your coat and tie on, everybody's there, and all these people from headquarters come down, and the, all the instructors are in there, and, you know, they make a big deal out of it. And they said, uh, okay, Murph, come on up. And then you get up in front of everybody and they said, all right, where do you, where would you like to go? And I said, well, I, uh, I'd like to go to Norfolk, Virginia. That's why it was number one on my list. You know, and I thought I was going to, have to write a memo for being a smart ass again, but I, I didn't. <laughs> and they said, where do you think you're going? I said, I think I'm going to go to Jacksonville, which would have been great because I love Jacksonville. And then they hand you an envelope, you know, and you open the envelope in front of the whole class. And the envelope says? The, my envelope said Miami. And I thought, you know, my wife was good to go anywhere but Miami. Now I got to go break this tour. <laughs> and this was in 1987. So, I mean, quite honest with you, I knew Miami was a hot spot. I was not disappointed. Well, and, and just so folks know, in a later episode, we're working on this, right, Steve? We want to get Connie's story about yes. her having to, first of all, how the hell she puts up with your ass. And then, <laughs> you know, that's going to be. 
and and you know for the women listeners out there you know but but really but also from a woman's point of view what's it like to to move to these areas and then we'll obviously talk about columbia but hey you know we're working on it right we're schmoozing her you know flowers dinners you know uh right. mani pedis right she's the luckiest woman in the world she got me you know <laughs> what can i say oh geez it's <laughs> a joke Javier. everybody it's a joke <laughs> yeah well okay sonny crockett so yeah i'm going to talk about that in a minute but jp how about you I mean, where did you where did you want to go? Where did you end up going? I I also wanted to I wanted to go to large cities, you know, because in DEA was I remember they were preaching if you get a large city, then you'll get to go to a small, medium sized uh, uh, city afterwards. But you got to do a large city in uh, with your you know for the experience. So I put in for Houston, L.A., Miami. I think even New York. I just wanted to get that. You know, I'm, I was by myself. I'm. Well, single. how had you gone to New York? You and Derek Maltz could have met up. <laughs> You're right, man. <laughs> You're right. But so anyway, so when uh, when I when I got the envelope, I mean, I was surprised when I opened that it was Austin, Texas. And being from Texas, of course, it was close to home. In Austin, the capital was known for the music industry. Everybody wanted to go Austin live in City Austin. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, great stuff. So I was very surprised that I got Austin, Texas, and it's considered a a, a small office. So I, I was like, and everybody was like, who do you know? Come on, man. You had to have known somebody <laughs> to get Austin. I said, guys, I never even put in for Austin. So that was my, my start in DEA going into uh, Austin, Texas. And Well, I'm you got Austin because you weren't a smart ass like Murphy and didn't that, have to write that, any memos. Exactly <laughs> right. So uh, I guess they thought I could sing too. So that was going to be my part-time job, being a oh country western I, singer. All right. Well, we're not going to do that on this podcast. No, not, so. not, not right now. Hey, so what I want to ask you guys now, before we start talking about getting into Columbia, everybody's, you know, I know going to be function at the bit, but but it's important you kind of understand, you know, how everybody got there. But Steve, you know, up until the time you went down to Miami, your biggest dope bust was two ounces of cocaine. You know, you were, oh yeah, we, 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 we're solving the problems of the world. Tell me about your first big dope deal in uh, Florida. <laughs> Yeah, so <clears throat> I get to Miami, and the, you know, of course, we get, they assign you a senior partner. And when I by this time I'd been a police officer for twelve years. I'd been on uh, DEA just for a few months, but I had almost twelve years on as a city cop and a railroad cop. So you're right. The the most powder cocaine I'd ever seen in my life in those twelve years was two ounces. Two ounces. So <laughs> oh, woohoo! They they, they partnered me up with a guy named Gene Frankar. Gene is the smartest guy I think I've ever met in my life. Uh, just, I mean, you talk about a mentor. I couldn't have had a better mentor to start with. But Gene is was a little bit, a uh, little bit plump at the time, and and had a baby face, and he liked to wear. Uh, these, uh, the old, uh, slacks that, you know, uh, polyester slacks and he'd wear a, a Guaybera shirt every day to work and penny loafers that had never seen shoe polish in their life, but just uh, unbelievably intelligent. So I thought, well, hell we're You know, I mean, I'm here in Miami now. I'm, this is Miami vice time. You know, I'm going to be getting, oh, you're going to be in Corvettes and Porsches oh, yeah. and Maseratis. I'm going to have the long flowing hair, you know, I'm going to have girls hanging all over me, uh, you know, well, which went well over well with Connie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She didn't like that much part too much. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, Gene says, well, listen, I want, we're going to go meet these two informants. We call them Cheech and Chong. And I think, okay, you know, you got to have a code name. So <laughs> I'm thinking, well, we're going to go out and get in this, this high, high tech, 
sports car and we're going to go down to the intercontinental down in Miami Harbor. And, you know, I'm just thinking everything I've seen on TV. Well, we go out and get this old ratty ass Oldsmobile, uh, or no, it's, he had a Chrysler LeBaron. That's what it was. Oh, and wow. It was, it was like five Top of years the line. old. Oh yeah. He, he had so much junk in there. He had to move stuff out of the front seat. So I'd have a place to sit in that car, you know, it just is really trashed out. And where do we go to meet these informants? Denny's restaurant on 36th Street over next to Miami Airport. <laughs> Headquarters of the evildoers, babies. That's where everybody goes. That like, and IHOP. Well, and it's funny because, you know, as the years went by, I had a lot of meetings in that Denny's restaurant. But <laughs> so anyway, we go in and sit down and, and these two informants, Gene's fill me in. He says, hey, these guys have an import-export business. Uh, they're a little bit older, but, uh, you know, they, they fly, they're they've got it going. They've, you know, they're world travelers. Uh, they know how this all works. They've got access to aircraft, blah, blah, blah. So we're sitting in the Denny's waiting and I'm like, wow, this is pretty, this is going to be impressive. Well, these two old guys come walking up and, and they stop at our table and I'm, I'm look up at them. I'm like, Hey, you know, table's occupied. You guys need to go sit somewhere else. And Gene's like, uh, no, go ahead. Sit down guys. That was Cheech and Chong. It was this old, old white guy and this old Asian guy. And I'm looking at them like, Really? These are the high speed informants that, you know, with the worldwide connections. And so anyway, I, you know, luckily I'm, I'm uh, experienced enough to keep my mouth shut because I'm the new guy. So Gene starts talking to him about bringing this load in and they're talking about bringing 500 kilos of cocaine in. So, you know, they go through and this is about an hour long meeting. And so we leave and I just say, hey, nice meeting you guys. See you later. We go get in the car and Gene's, we're heading back to the DEA office there in Miami. And Dean, Gene says, what do you think? I'm like, Gene, are those guys full of shit or what? He said, what do you mean? I said, they're talking about 500 kilos of cocaine in one load. There's not that much cocaine in the world at one time, is there? <laughs> and he starts laughing. He looks over to me. He's like, where are you from? <laughs> Can't hear you. Can't hear you. Oh, yeah, you can. You just didn't want to hear me. I said, you're from Tennessee and what? Sorry. Every, you know, we're not going to edit this stuff out. I've had it. I had it. I was doing a cough and I had it on mute. But, you know, <laughs> you know you're from Tennessee and West Virginia. The biggest thing you ever hunted was a possum hunting ring. And hey, now made, y'all's out there. I make no bones about it. I'm a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly, and I'm happy with what I am. But that led, you know, what that led to was a few months later, I did my first undercover trip on a, uh, 53 foot Hatter Sport Fisherman. I had no idea what that was. That's one of those fancy fishing boats that has the fishing chair on the back. It's an undercover boat that DEA had seized from some bad guys. We took that to the Turks and Caicos Islands, which I'd never heard of. It took us five days to get there. I was sick three of those five days. I had seasickness. <laughs> uh, I never threw up. The two boat captains did, but I didn't. Uh, when we got there, I told him to put the a Zodiac is the life raft that's on there. I said, put the Zodiac in the water. Take me to land. <laughs> get me <laughs> the know? hell out of here. I slept in Jean's, in the floor of Gene's hotel room because I wouldn't get back on that damn boat. But what? once the deal went through, a plane flies in from Cuba. It lands at the airstrip. We're working with the, with the uh, Turks and Caicos police. They have an undercover officer with us. We're at the end of the runway. As the plane hits the end of the runway, where it slows down, it makes the turn to go back to the terminal. The door flies open, and a, a Hispanic male throws out a bunch of these green duffel bags full of 400 kilos of cocaine. Goes up, refuels, takes off, flies back to Cuba. So 
my experience, I went from two ounces, which was in a baggie, to 880 pounds of cocaine. And I got to tell you, Morgan, I was addicted to coke at that point, just in a different way. Steve, there's 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 help for that, you know, self-help. <laughs> <laughs> well, 26 years of work at DEA, that took care of that addiction. Well, Javier, let's talk about you because your, big, your first big deal, you were actually being portrayed, right, as like El Jefe. You were coming in, they were going to fly you in and... And so you're probably having these illusions of grandeur, like, oh, it's going to be like a Cessna twin turboprop or a Learjet, right? Right. You about died in that plane, didn't you? Yeah, that that was my first experience. Wow, it was just a little single-engine, one-propeller airplane, and it was a. Luckily, there was we had a professional informant with us, but I was the. The cartel boss, El Jefe, from Mexico. El Jefe. Yep, I had 500 kilos of marijuana. And back then, in the mid-'80s, that was a lot of marijuana. So uh, we staged it. The, the buyers were at this uh, uh, runway clandestine airstrip in somewhere near Austin. And I'm flying, and I'm, I think we're going to get killed because it's just that this pilot's a little crazy. I think all pilots are a little crazy, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we're flying all over the place, and we come in, and there's toilet paper on, on the on the strip. I said, "What the hell is toilet paper?" And the informer <laughs> said, "No, nah, it's a sign that it's okay to land, but we just buzz over it, do a round, and come in and and land." And the plane is all over the place. I'll never forget that. I get off, and the buyers, oh man, they are kissing my butt. They're coming to me, and I'm I'm, I'm speaking the broken uh, broken English, and you know, I got gold, I got all sorts of metal you know, chains on me. <laughs> so they think I am the real, you know, and they but that's how you it. normally dress, yeah. isn't it, JP? Yeah, yeah, a lot of gold, <laughs> yeah, my neck, my, yeah, anyway. So they're kissing my butt, oh, if this goes well, we're going to be buying, you know, 500 pounds on a weekly basis. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm giving them the hard time, too. I say, hey, where's the money? I'm playing up the part. <laughs> Finally, everybody gets arrested, but, man, I'll never forget that. I thought I was going to get killed in that little airplane into a clandestine, in, in the strip was, I think, caliche, limestone type of a strip. <laughs> but I said that was my first experience. And I got to tell you, my other experience, remember when I said that, uh, that I worked in uh, Laredo? And on my days yeah. off, I mean, we used to party, and we'd go to Nuevo Laredo. Nuevo Laredo had a lot of bars. The The alcohol was cheap, good food. Uh, so it was the, you know, everybody used to go party in Nuevo Laredo. And, uh, but because of my knowledge of the bars, I think that basically saved my life. <laughs> what happened is, what I think it was my one of my first undercover deals. God went into a hotel room in Austin, on the south side of Austin, which was some city hotels. I mean, a lot of mistakes were done. It was a Friday afternoon. Nobody wanted to work. All right, just, just go get it out of the way. I was the head undercover. I go into this hotel room, which you should never do, and uh, I get a gun placed to my head, and and uh, I remember it was a Mexican guy and, you know, telling me in Spanish that he found, if he found out I was a cop or something was not right, I was going to be the first one to die. And like I said, when you have a gun to your head, it is just, it, it 
it's a little uh, unnerving, right? Changes your perspective. <laughs> you know what? It, 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 I, of course. And you know what? I laughed now, but back then. And you know what? My first thought that came to my mind, I just wanted to do a timeout, buddy. I'm not a real crook. I'm just an actor. Why don't we all go home, man? You go home. I go home. <laughs> nobody gets hurt. <laughs> but then la later on, anyway, so I started, you know, then you're street savvy. You know, your meanness starts coming in, you know, started. Get, he, I just said, hey, motherfucker, I'm from, you know, Nuevo Laredo. I go to this bars, and I mentioned about three or four, and this bars are real city, city-type bars. If you're not... And they were in a bad area of town in Nuevo Laredo. Let me just say that. So, you know, I threw out about three names. I remember one of the bars was Papagayo, the one, two, three bar, <laughs> San Susi bar. I mean, you can tell these are bad bars. <laughs> Not a lot of people go to them. And he knew him. He was like, he told his partner, hey, this guy can't be a cop, man. He's, he's hanging out at all these bars. And I knew the bartenders. I knew the people there. So the guy sort of said, ah, he's okay. Put his gun down. So that basically, my buddies from Hammondville who used to come with me to those bars, they'd be proud of me. <laughs> so by the knowledge, that that basically saved my life. How long before it was before you could take a shit again? Because your, your <laughs> asshole had to be puckered oh, up. buddy, I tell you what, you learned a lot, and you, I, I was... I said, I will never do this again. Yeah, right. I, I did that again a lot. <laughs> Were you more scared of riding in the one propeller plane or the gun to your head? No, nah, I think the gun to the head because that's, uh, I said, you know what? It says, wow, this guy kills me. You know, that's it. It's going to suck. <laughs> yeah, game's <laughs> over. I, you know. Anyway, yeah, that, that really, you know, that's unearthing when, they, when you have a gun to your head. Well, and, and folks, again, like I say, you're not, not to tease you, but we are going to do this because guess what, comrades? We believe in capitalism. So, uh, but, you know, we'll have some paid content, but yeah, this, we go into detail on a lot of these stories. That's how come I know so much about them because I've already done 12 and a half, 13 hours of interviews with Steve and JP here. So let's now start getting into uh, some of the introduction, but, but, you know, on a serious note too, uh, JP, one of the things you got detailed to uh, early on uh, in your assignment um, one of the DEA agents, Kiki Camarina, was kidnapped, tortured, and killed. And you actually got what's called TDY, temporary duty. You actually got uh, TDY down to Mexico for a little bit to work on that investigation, right? Yes, and uh, I'll always remember, I was in Austin, Texas. I barely had a year on the job. And, you know, anybody in law enforcement or any career, one year, you don't know shit. You're you're learning the basics. You're learning. All of a sudden, I get a call. I remember my boss in uh, San Antonio, who was Joe Toft, who later on became our boss in Colombia. And uh, he said, Javier, I think one of our agents uh, is missing. We need Spanish speakers. Of course, I knew Spanish. And uh, he says, you need to get down to Mexico right away. And, you know, I didn't even have a passport. I said, boss, I don't have a passport. Uh, went home to Hebronville. I'm from Hebronville, Texas, picked up my birth certificate, uh, made arrangements on the, the next day to fly over, landed in uh, Mexico. Nobody was there to pick me up. I mean, it was just everything was going wrong. Got me a little hotel close to the airport until finally the next day, some of the agents were looking for me. They thought something was wrong. They found me. And anyway, so I ended up uh, going to Mazatlan because that was where uh, Kike's... Uh, kidnapper uh uh what's his name um 
uh, a, a model career for this? No, no, not a model career. It was uh, Car- Carlo Carl Quintero. Quintero. Yeah, Miguel yeah, Carlo Quintero. Quintero. That was his headquarters, that Masalan area. And we already knew that Carlo Quintero had kidnapped our agent. And it, it, it's something I'll never forget. I'll always remember the rest of my life. It was that feeling you're looking for uh, one of our agents. We had already, we had not found the body yet. So we were looking for Carlo Quintero in that mountain area of uh, Mazatlan, and uh, it, it was just something that is, it's, it's hard to explain when you have a brother agent who's been, you know, kidnapped, and then later on we found out he was tortured, and uh, later on killed, and, you know, they would not let him die, they would uh, keep pumping adrenaline into him. So it, it's something surreal. So I was involved at an early age with DEA in the search of our brother agent who's considered, who is a hero, uh, Kike Camarena. And we do a lot of, you know, Red Ribbon is uh, named uh, after him, the Red Ribbon campaign. So anyway, Kike Camarena was one of our, you know, legends in DEA. And I was involved in his, to, in the search of the guys who did it. Well, and and there's a obviously Netflix made the series Narcos Mexico uh, because of that, and so it, again, it's one of those things that does get into detail, but it's kind of like you never know early on what things you're going to get into. And and JP, last question here before we start getting into uh, uh, Colombia, did you know at the time that you got down there? Did you have any indications whether Kiki was still alive, or did did you guys hope against hope? But what did you think he was probably dead at that point? We thought he was probably dead. Of course, you always have that expectation that he's alive. They're keeping, but a lot of information, a lot of intelligence was coming in that he uh, that he was already dead, and uh, it, and it was true. Later on, we we were able to find his body, and everything uh, was what they said: tortured. You know, did not let him die, tortured until he, you know, he finally uh, passed uh, passed away at the hands of getting killed by the traffickers. That was led by Miguel Caro Quintero. Yeah, and Steve, you and I talk with uh, Abe Perez and Paul Crane about that later. That's one of the things we're going to talk about in a later podcast is that shootout down at that resort with Caro Quintero and a lot of his gang. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that, Steve, before we get into Columbia? No, just that... Uh... Javier said it, and I just want to reiterate it, that that Kiki is a hero. He gave his life for his country. Uh, He went through misery, torture, horrific acts that should never be uh, done to any human being. Uh, So he is one of our heroes. I I don't use that word lightly. I don't have heroes, but uh, because of what he did, he is. And I'm going to say something, and I don't want you guys to say it because you're DEA. I'm not. Um, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you folks have any inclination to watch anything, do not watch The Last Narc on Amazon Prime. That is the biggest crock of shit and load of bullshit you're ever going to hear. And it, ta- it, and it, it involves the kidnapture or the capture kidnapping of Kiki and a bullshit story that goes with it. So I will tell you right now, and having talked to people who are inside in the know on this, Trust me, it's it's not worth your time to watch this. Watch Netflix, watch anything else other than The Last Narc. So anyway, I was getting my blood up too, because I'm like you. I, I hate that stuff when anytime you have a brother or sister die in the line of duty, you want their memory honored. You know, you don't want it dragged through the mud. Right. Um, and so I also, I'll, let me stop there before I go off on a tangent, because you know <laughs> how I get when I go off on a tangent. Uh, we got to change your diaper. Now... The mission begins. Now, 
Real quickly, Javier, you, you and Steve both are in Bogota, but you arrive at different times. You're the first one down there. And you, you precede him by what, two years or so, three years? Right. Three years. Mm-hmm. Three years. All right. Let's talk real quickly. How did you end up in Bogota? Because I think you originally wanted to go to Mexico, but you ended up in Bogota. Is that right? Yes. In 1988, I was in Austin and I wanted to go for, and I wanted to go see, go see how the real uh, traffickers worked, uh, you know, in the big leagues. So I applied, I wanted to go and I applied for Mexico. And then all of a sudden, I did not apply for Colombia. Then I get a my call from my boss who says, Javier, um, did you apply for Colombia? I said, no, sir. I said, Mexico. Well, you got selected for Colombia. And I always remember, says, do you want to fight it? We can try to I said nah boss you know what I'll, I'll go to Colombia let me just go see where it is in the map <laughs> and uh, so uh, that was my Good thing uh, they speak Spanish in Colombia right that was my beginning in, uh, for Colombia it was uh, it was done on a mistake and I'm glad I did not fight uh, fight going there so uh, but what was your assignment though when you went down to Colombia um, assume you worked out of the embassy in Bogota is that right Right, right. You were assigned to the embassy, and I get there in 1988, and I'm there maybe about a couple of weeks, and it just so happened that my boss in Austin was stationed in San Antonio, a guy by the name of Joe Toft, who we talk uh, a lot about in our podcasts, in our books. Anyway, so he was now the, he had been selected as a country attache, and he knew me, and I, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was a worker, like, like Steve. They were selecting workers at that time to go to Columbia, because at the, there was a time there where I think, uh, work was not really getting done at that time so they were uh info i mean uh, they were changing out the a lot of uh the ages there bringing in new blood if i can say that you know i was one of those and steve was also when he came in anyway so i remember my boss Tom says have you, have you heard of pablo escobar i said i've heard of him but don't know much about him so he says well you need to start learning about him because I'm assigning you the case of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. I said, okay, yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I didn't know whether to say thank you or wow. And did he let you know a, a <laughs> series on Netflix would be coming along with this assignment too? <laughs> yeah, right. It was, uh, I wish I would have known about Netflix at that time. <laughs> and, and, and Javier, let's bookend it for people. When did you arrive in Colombia? Yeah, I mean, you applied for it. You're finally down there. When does your tour of duty start in Colombia? I think I got there like in January of 1988, uh, okay. which 1988, if you look at the history of Pablo Escobar, it was at the violent, at the car bomb time, at the terrorist. Well, that's what I was going to say, because you arrived, mm-hmm. you arrived just after the attorney general um, uh, was kidnapped, Carlos uh, Mauro, uh, Hoyos Jimenez, right? Right, right, he right. He was kidnapped and killed right before that, right? Right, yeah, he was, he was. You know, uh, you know in my, uh, when I when I get there, I experience the, like I said, the, the, the emergence of the Sicarios, which were Escobar's assassins. Uh, you know, I see the Avianca, the commercial airline that was bombed. I see the, uh, uh, the, uh, person who was running for president of Colombia, Luis Carlos Galan, who was going to be the president. I see him getting killed by Pablo Escobar. I see the bombing of the famous DOS building, which was like the local 
FBI office. So I, I get to see the, uh, like I said, the atrocities of Pablo Escobar's sicarios. I learned who Pablo Escobar was. And uh, it, it, you know, I always tell people it, it wasn't your ordinary drug trafficker. This guy had implemented terrorism in his drug trafficking, and uh, Pablo Escobar's famous for his motto, which said, you want plata or plomo, you want a bullet, or you want some money. So that was quickly came into emergence of who Pablo Escobar was. And JP, real quick too, one of the reasons that fueled this and drove this was the extradition treaty, right? A lot of this might not have happened except Colombia had uh, put in the extradition treaty, which these guys hated. The last place any of these guys wanted to go was back to the United States, right? Yes, Morgan, and I'm glad you brought that up. In the crux, the whole fight of Pablo Escobar against the world was over extradition. He did not want to get extradited to the United States. At this time, it was unconstitutional in Colombia for Colombians to be extradited. However, because of Pablo Escobar and because of the violence, and you know, I, I forgot to mention the, the famous car bombs that we, he, Pablo Escobar was placing, about 10 on a daily basis, the assassinations, the kidnappings of, of uh, press people, of important politicians. So people were getting tired of the violence that Pablo Escobar had created, of all the, the assassinations, the killings. So there was a movement in Colombia to judicialize extradition. In other words, vote in the Constitution for it, bring it back. And I remember the, the first editor, uh, newspaper editor, Guillermo Cano, writes an op-bad piece saying, fellow Colombians, we need to bring back extradition. What happens? Escobar kills the editor and bombs the newspaper building. I mean, just for writing an article. Then there was a famous attorney later on um, the uh, uh, who was also in favor of extradition, Pablo Escobar, has him killed. Then the think the final that broke the camel's back was the killing of presidential candidate Luis Carlos Galan, who was uh, who was uh, running for president, and his main flat platform was bringing back extradition. Friday night, 1989, Pablo Escobar, while Galan was campaigning in uh, Swatcha, which is right outside of Bogota, Pablo Escobar's sicarios have him killed. And that is the start of the war because... The like I said, the president of Colombia, the next president of Colombia, uh, was killed by Pablo Escobar because he was bringing back extradition. Well, and, and that's uh, that's why I'm glad you put a good point on that too, because a lot of people think it's about the drugs and the are It is, but what really fueled this was they know, and they were uh, wasn't there an organization too created? They called themselves Los Extraditables. Yeah, the Extraditables, Extraditables, and this was. Nothing more than a group uh, led by Pablo Escobar. The heading of it used to say, Preferemos una tumba en Colombia a un calabozo en Estados Unidos. Translated, we prefer a uh, tomb in Colombia than a jail cell in the United States. This was created by Pablo Escobar. And... Pablo Escobar had the audacity that he would drop this leaflets 
at the car bomb sites. In other words, I am Pablo Escobar, and I am taking credit for killing as many people as I can. Man, uh, I mean, just uh, again, if, if you ever want to know if, if somebody is evil incarnate, you know, evil is coming. I mean, this guy, I, I just want to clarify one point, because Steve, I got a question for you. But Javier, you were saying there were 10 car bombs a day going off at one point? Yes, yes. At the height of Pablo Escobar's terrorism, he was placing them in Bogota, in Medellin, shopping centers, restaurants. He placed a lot at our police base where we were stationed in Medellin at the Carlos Holguin base. That was where we were uh, headquartered when we were going after Pablo Escobar. He placed them right outside uh, our gate. He'd place them at sporting events or uh, just anywhere where there was a congregation of people because Pablo Escobar wanted to kill as many people as possible to make a point, basically, that Colombia had to negotiate with him. Um, so this is all going on. You're working him. He is a, uh, he is a big target at that point. And while even though that there's a first manhunt for him, where the real impact of this story begins is during the second manhunt, but but for that to happen, he's got to turn himself in first. And Steve, I mean, it's funny because you come down to Columbia about three years later and you land on the ground. And what happens within a week of you landing in Columbia? Well, Pablo heard Murphy was in town and he surrendered. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, he actually did surrender, but it was just coincidence um, mm -hmm. uh, that he did surrender on that Thursday, the the first week that I was in Colombia. Um, you know, and, and at that time, I didn't know that I was going to be working on the Escobar case. You don't know before you get to the office what cases you're going to be assigned to. But I'm thinking, hey, that's great. You know, the world's biggest cocaine uh, manufacturer and distributor is in custody. But what I saw, you know, from Javier and his partner at the time was a guy named Gary Sheridan and the other agents that had been there for a while. Everybody in the embassy was disappointed. And I'm thinking, what the heck, man? This guy's in prison. I mean, he's behind bars now. That's where he should be. But, you know, as the longer I'm in country and as I get to know everybody and, and learn more about Pablo and the Escobar, uh, the Medellin cartel, uh, and the atrocities that he committed down there, the, the thousands and thousands of innocent people that were killed because of him, I saw the reason for their disappointment. They felt like he had been given what we now call the deal of a lifetime, you know, and he did get that deal. Um, but they also felt like they had lost because, you know, we all know his prison, his custom-built prison was a joke. It wasn't a prison at all. It turned out, and we confirmed this once he escaped and went inside and looked at it, that it was a country club. It was just, you know, it's, I mean, unbelievably embarrassing for the government of Colombia to have to succumb to the, that type of pressure from somebody like Pablo Escobar. So La Catedral was kind of like the height of uh, um, uh, Pablo's influence over the country is that he could actually dictate the terms of his surrender, how he was going to surrender, who was going to be there with him, who was going to guard him, what the government could and couldn't do. Can you imagine a criminal in the United States saying, hey, I'm going to turn myself in, but I have some conditions first. You know, I want to build my own prison, you know, uh, just amazing. And, and you know, uh, JP, you were down there when this happened. You'd been hunting him for quite a while. And real quickly, let me book in the other part of this. Steve, when did you arrive in Columbia? I got there in June 91 and I left in June 94. All right. So you, you, you arrive in June 91. Uh, Javier, you're down there for three years and you're hunting this guy. What was it like to realize is that as you're hunting him, as he's blowing up 10 car bombs a day and he's doing all of this stuff, 
that he gets to surrender and gets to dictate the terms of his surrender and live out, you know, the next whatever five years at Lakata Drow. Yes. I mean, that was, uh, like we all say, that uh, that surrender was just, it made me sick. Uh, my my police counterparts working for Pablo Escobar, were, everybody was upset. Our people at the embassy. But remember when we mentioned that Pablo Escobar instituted his terrorism campaigning, killing as many people as possible, the car bombs, assassination. Plus, you know, Steve and I had a lot of good friends killed by Pablo Escobar, police officer friends. So it this was a personal war against Pablo Escobar. It was not just an ordinary trafficker. Anyway, I'll never forget. So because all the killings that were going on, Colombia was tired. The whole country was tired. So now, remember when I said he was also uh, kidnapping press people, politicians? I mean, his fight, I'll let you leave. But you got to be on my side. In other words, back me when I start negotiating with the government of Colombia. So now Pablo Escobar, because of all the killings, calls up the government of Colombia and really called up the president of Colombia, who's a guy now by the name of Cesar Gaviria, and basically says, I am willing to stop my bombing campaign, Mr. President. The president, the government of Colombia was ecstatic. What? And I am willing to self-surrender. I mean, just that. Stop my bombing campaign, stop killing people, and I'm willing to self-surrender. Ain't that like great news? Everybody should be happy. Then all of a sudden, the famous conditions. But there's a big spot coming yeah, with but this. But all of a sudden, the famous conditions for the surrender uh, came up. The first one was, I'm going to build my own prison, and I will finance it. Colombia, you do not need to spend a penny on it. I am going to hire my own prison guards. I am going to pay their salaries, Colombia. That's going to be on me. I'm going to bring in my own sicarios, my personal guards, my own sicarios. That way they can protect me and nobody can come and visit me. In other words, there's not going to be any unannounced uh, visits, uh, checks, checks and balances. Nobody can come in. Then then he negotiated a five-year prison sentence. So the, when he started the negotiations with these conditions, all of us said, hey, this government's not going to go for this wrong. The government went for it. They signed that deal, and that was the biggest uh like well, said, he got to farce. keep all his money, JP. He didn't yep, have to give yep, up any, yep, anything. And, yep. The other condition was no no release of assets. He was going to keep everything. So I will never forget that day because it was personal. I was ordered out of Medellin. The ambassador called me, and it was a, just a big stage. They did a press deal. Chopper flew in. And, uh, you know, so if you can imagine all your friends that were killed by Pablo Escobar, all the innocent people for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now the government is forgiving him and letting him self-surrender into his own home, if I can say that. And later on, we'll explain that famous home. And it, it was just a black eye for us. All of us felt like we were betrayed by the government of Colombia. And I saw that surrender. Uh, you know, I had to watch it on television. I was ordered out of Medellin. And uh, there's a famous uh, Catholic priest, uh, Father Garcia Herreros, who got on the chopper with him. The sicarios get in with him. The chopper takes off. So basically, we had lost and Pablo Escobar had won.
just it's hard to put that into words because obviously you know and some of the listeners will find out later too i actually did work on what was later called plan columbia i was down actually javier and i crossed paths at the u.s embassy we just didn't know it at that time you know and it's such a great country it's such a beautiful country i mean there's just great things we talked about going to eat at montserrat you know the uh beautiful restaurant on top of the hills down there but steve even while you're there i mean it's like you think you're going to get involved with this and it's like they pull the rug out from under you, and it's not like there's not other things to do, right? But you keep working this case because um, obviously the Medellin cartel isn't going out of business just because Javier's in prison, right? Well, because Pablo, Pablo. Uh, Javier, Javier didn't go <laughs> to prison. <laughs> Javier's I, in prison later, I, sorry. Yeah, I almost went to prison, Morgan. Believe me, I came close. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, we are going to talk about that, you treasonous bastard, you. <laughs> um, but, yeah. uh, well, and we'll talk about what happens in Pablo's room. That's for a little bit later, but Steve, I'm sorry. <laughs> so as yeah. Pablo, you know, is in prison, but it, it, how, how much does it slow down the Medellin cartel? Not an inch, oh, right? Not at all. No, I mean, not, not even an iota. It was, uh, it, it, what it did is now at one point, uh, Pablo had, I started to say, Javier See, you almost said Javier. <laughs> <laughs> at, at one point, Pablo had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. Now, in this prison, his custom-built prison, who's protecting him? The governor of Columbia, right? I mean, this man has slashed his overhead. It was a great business move. Uh, and all it did was gave him an opportunity to rebuild his his uh, resources, his distribution routes, to consolidate his power, to increase the distribution or the manufacturing levels of cocaine that he was responsible for. This is a guy who was responsible for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine. I mean, think about that, Morgan. You know, you, you're like us. you got some small businesses you're running. Wouldn't you like to have 80% of the market in your business? I'm mean, Skippy. <laughs> absolutely. Everybody would. But, you know, Escobar, and I certainly don't mean to give him any credit where credit's not due. He's just nothing but a murderous criminal. But, man, 80%. And, and you know who his, his biggest customers were? The United States. United you know? States, yeah. We have, you can't we, have a you can't have a supply without a demand, you know, to go with it too. So that's exactly right. And even to this day, the United States is still the largest consumer country of illegal narcotics in the world. That's not a well, and we talk about product. the opioids and you know and all the other stuff, the fentanyl and things like that, right? Right. Um, but Steve, let's let's dispel a quick rumor though, because um, the end is you know at some point, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of shorten this up just because of time, but at some point the end of Pablo's time at the prison is coming to a close. Now, in Narcos, it appears is that you and JP are hiding out there, and you take a shotgun and you shoot out of the air a carrier pigeon. <laughs> Let's put a stake in the heart of this rumor. Yeah, you know what? Uh, Javier and I both love the Narco series. Uh, when it first started, when they contacted us, we thought it was going to be the biggest flop in, in the history of Hollywood. Shows how much or how much how little we knew about. Good thing Hollywood, they didn't right? listen to you. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. And so we're we're huge fans of the show, but there's a lot of Hollywood in there. Everything in the show is not true. Most people know that, but but there are countries that we visit around the world that think just because it's on TV, it's true. So you know, when we finally got in there the day after Escobar escaped, Javier and I go up, and and uh, that's when we started working and living in Medellin for the next eighteen months, and uh, you know. DEA is very good at intercepting communications because any organization, legal or illegal, has to be able to communicate with its group to to do business, right? 
So that whole year that Pablo was in prison, we didn't intercept any communications coming out of there, and we couldn't figure out why until we got there. And that's when we learned that Pablo was using carrier pigeons. Now, that's, again, not to give him much credit, but that's pretty ingenious. Uh, the he, NSA cannot in- intercept a carrier pigeon, you know, in flight. He beat us on that one. But in the show, it shows Javier out there shooting one of those pigeons down. Well, go back and watch that scene and look at the proximity of where we are in relation to where the prisoners are. If we'd been shooting shotguns, they would have heard that. The Sicarios would have come down there and killed us, and we wouldn't be here talking to you on a podcast today, would we? <laughs> this would be awkward because I'd be asking myself a lot of questions I can't answer. So, <laughs> so it's just uh, uh, you know, not criticizing Netflix or the. Hey, but, or but the it's Hollywood. We all understand it's Hollywood. Right. You know, good storytelling. Um, right. Hey, but JP, tell us about what really became the beginning of the end for uh, Pablo's time at La Catedral, and it really started with. Uh, some people finding some money and blaming somebody else. And this kind of started, uh, you know, this this internecine warfare that ended up in Pablo leaving. So w- what happened with that money um, and who was behind that? You know what? Pablo Escobar's eagle. That's all it was. That that big eagle he had. Remember, he had been in prison, so-called prison, one year. He's got four more to go. And it, and it, he was not going to serve the four. He, he's probably going to be let out in another year or so. But for anyway, good behavior. Yeah, for good <laughs> behavior. And it would have it was it, it was going to happen. So anyway, so his sicarios, and remember, sicarios, these are the personal bodyguards. They kill for Pablo. They love Pablo. They'll do whatever Pablo wants them to do. So a couple of Pablo's trafficker friends, not sicarios, this guy's Moncada Galliano. They've been uh, talked about before, but they were his main lieutenants. In other words, they were running the loads for Pablo, giving him 50% of the profits. They were sending the dope to the United States, uh, to Europe. One night, a couple of sicarios find some money. It's about $10 million, and the money is deteriorated. So they bring it back to Pablo at the prison and says, hey, boss, look what your two favorite friends. And remember, there's always a lot of jealousy between the Sicarios and these other two trafficking guys because the two trafficking guys had shitload of money. So basically they egg on Pablo Escobar telling him his Sicarios have been hiding money from him. And because of that ego, because of that personality, because of he is Pablo Escobar, he gets pissed to the point where he says, bring him in, but bring him in. I want him to come in by themselves, tell him it's a friendly meeting. It's, you know, don't bring any security. I just want to see what's going on in Medellin. And that was a trap. As soon as they get to the prison, the two guys, Moncada and Galliano, they see the money. Pablo has it right in front of him. And the money is deteriorated. It's fallen apart. It had not been covered properly. And that's what deals to Pablo Escobar's escape, the uh, the deterioration of the money, Pablo Escobar blaming his two lieutenants, Pablo himself kills one of them, kills Moncada him with his bare hand. He had a stick close to him, so he starts clubbing him to death and just kills him. The Sicarios come in and kill the other guy, Galliano, and that's what led to the government of Colombia's that 
us telling the government of Colombia, hey, you got to do something, man. This guy's out of control. He just killed his two favorite lieutenants. There's a bloodbath in Medellin. He's starting to kill all of the Moncada, Galliano family members, workers, anybody associated with them. So that's what convinced the government of Colombia to get him out of his so-called luxury prison. And Steve, go into a little bit of that, because when that fateful night arrives, it's it somewhat reflected, I think, fairly accurately in Narcos, right? But you, you've got this fresh-faced Colombian, uh, what, was it the Justice Minister or the uh, Attorney General, uh, or Deputy Attorney General, showing up with 400 troops, right? And they're going to move uh, Pablo, and I didn't say Javier this time, they're going to move Pablo you know, from his cushy location to a real prison. Give us the breakdown on that. What happens? Well, initially it was a deputy uh, minister of justice. uh, Mendoza. 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 Yeah. So he goes up there with uh, a small contingent of of military personnel. And when they get there, he's with the colonel and and they get outside the gate and he looks over and says, colonel, go in there and get get him. (laughs) Colonel looked at him and said, hey, the president tell tell me to go in there. He told you to go in there. I'm not going in there. And that was Colonel uh, Hernando Navas, right? Right. 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 So Mendoza goes in there and, and tries to you know, talk to to Pablo and tell him, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna move you to another prison temporarily, so we can fortify security around here. You know, it's all for your safety." Well, Pablo saw right through that. You know, he knew this was a setup, and so they took Mendoza hostage there. Um, when the president found out about that, then that's when they sent uh, the hundreds and hundreds of troops in there. Uh, they sent a very elite unit of military, Colombian military people in there, and they're the ones that conducted a raid on the prison. Now, miraculously, I mean, and this is a real miracle, uh, during that firefight, there were some, some of Pablo's guards were killed, no good guys were hit, and Mendoza survived. Now, the, the whole time Mendoza's in there, the Sicarios are wanting to kill him. Well, know, because- Popeye, his, his top Sicario, didn't he have an Uzi to his head at one time, too? I mean, wasn't there a point where this guy was close to being popped? Oh yeah, the, the the Sicarios made no point of or made no. Uh, they didn't hesitate whatsoever. They wanted to make an example that you mess with Pablo, this is what happens. You get killed for coming in here and asking a stupid question like that. So uh, you know the the military goes in there. They save Mendoza. Uh, the the other miraculous thing about that is with the prison prison being surrounded, Pablo and I think seven of his trusted Sicarios, which there were only fourteen prisoners in that whole prison, including Pablo. And he handpicked his fellow inmates, but Pablo and seven of his Sicarios walk out of that prison unscathed. You know, that's always been the question. How the hell did that happen? Yeah, yeah, I was about to ask you, because at one point somebody said, were there tunnels? And I saw some of the reports about there being tunnels. No tunnel was ever discovered that he got out of. It's like he had some kind of an escape route. Either that or he's the luckiest son of a bitch on the planet (laughs) at that point. Well, I've read I've read various books about it, various accounts about it, but uh, my true belief is that he probably paid somebody off when he encountered whoever you know was there to prevent him from escaping. They probably went away with a lot of greenbacks in their pockets. Well, and a plato or plomo, right? You know, silver or lead, right? You know? And yep. re- and remember, he always had that safe in his uh, apartment inside the prison. That safe was open, so yeah, cash was paid. We always we found cash out was later, came. yeah, pay, cash was paid to some of the uh, you know authorities outside. Well, JP, let's talk about that because when this happens it, during your first uh, manhunt for Pablo, 
you had built a lot of good relationships with the Colombian National Police, you know, the government, the folks. And, you know, and Steve, you're just, you're, you're there a year. So you're, you're building the same relationships. But when this happens, something very unique kind of happens too, JP. I mean, you are personally requested by the Colombian National Police to come in and help them with that. How did that come about? Yes. After, like I said, after the escape, uh, and remember he had been in prison for about one year. So we still suspected and we knew he was doing, still doing his trafficking anyway. So after, like I said, that first night that he leaves, uh, we get called and, uh, Steve and I, and we're name, you know, we get called by name. The government of Colombia wants us there. So we arrive. The very next day, Pablo Escobar had escaped from the his prison, and wow, were we in for a big surprise. It's uh, all the rumors that uh, we knew about Pablo Escobar, they were all true. He was living uh, in a country club setting. Uh, he was still doing his trafficking. He was still doing his killings uh, from inside the prison. So it, it just confirmed all of our suspicions, but even more so, more so in that the stuff we were finding at the prison is, how did this get undetected? How did he build his famous, they call them chalets. In other words, they were like little apartments built on the side of the prison embedded in the mountains. <laughs> like, how do you do this? And nobody ever found out. Uh, it, it, it was just weird. Then he has had all this fancy televisions, uh, refrigerators. My question is, how did they carry them out there? You know, uh, it's like, you know, so it, it was just a lot of the, uh, the luxury, the, you know, there was a set of prison bars only on one side, but that was it. It was just the facade. Oh, that was for show. Yeah. yeah, that was just for show. But, you know, the, the fancy apartments, uh, the soccer field, how did he have this professional grade soccer field? We started finding photos of Colombia's soccer team uh, being there. I remember the photo of uh, the dreadlock. Right under everybody's uh, noses. Yep, yep, dreadlock goalie, Iguita, I think it was Rene Iguita, famous goalie, great player. But, you know, all the all these people were visiting Pablo Escobar, playing soccer with him. Uh, it, it, it was just unbelievable. But the luxury... Like we said, it was no prison. This was a country club setting. Speaking of luxury, my understanding is that while Murph is is roughing it, he's sleeping like on the cement floor in a cot. You spend the first night in the jail in the lap of luxury. You get to spend the night in Pablo's bed, dude. Was that <laughs> that is accurate? You know what? And it was a personal bed by the colonel uh, who was leading the the search at the prison. They all were making fun of me. It was a bed that I would not sleep in his bed. I said, "I'll take you up on that bed," and I did. I changed the sheets. I tell people I did. <laughs> I changed the sheets, but it, it remarkable. You know what I remember about that night? Of course, I couldn't sleep, but it was just uh, the picture ceramic picture of the Virgin Mary over his bed. I mean, here's a guy who's The Virgin killing. Mary is staring down at his bed? Yeah. It, it's a, it's, and you'll see it. It's a ceramic, very hand, it's a handmade, very well-made uh, picture of the Virgin Mary right over his bed. In other words, every time he went to bed, he would look at her and it was just, look, you know, the, <laughs> it's, you're killing thousands and thousands of innocent people. And uh, here you are uh, asking for forgiveness or praying or whatever he was doing. But a picture of the Virgin Mary over his bed. 
Well, Murph, I, I look at you right now, and you're getting jealous, right? You kind of wish you'd been able to sleep. I mean, you know, hey, yeah, the, not the so Navy much. hot bunks, you know, you could have done it. Not so much. I, I'm pretty good. I was pretty good back at the base. Uh, well, and let's talk about something that was set up this second round, too, that was had been set up the first time. And it was what's called the search block, right? And if I remember me Espanol correctly, it's Block de Búsqueda, right? Bloque de Búsqueda, correct. Bloque de Búsqueda. And so Colonel Martinez, who's going to factor very much into an important role the second time, he was actually the leader of the search block the first time, but he wasn't available, Steve, right, this second time. you And you guys were like, because of who was there, we will we go into more detail on the bonus content, but let's just call him Colonel Bachama Pants, you know? But you, you wanted Colonel Martinez back in the worst way, didn't you? We did. And, and after that first manhunt, as a thank you for all his sacrifices and efforts, the Colombian government posted Colonel Martinez in Spain, and that was one of their prime postings around the world. So that was done as an attaboy for him. Uh, we go in, and, and after Escobar escapes, they've got uh, Mr. Pajamas there is in, is in charge of the search block. Uh, this guy, he was all about organization, you know, your uniform looking sharp, your weapon being clean, doing calisthenics in the morning. You know, we're here trying to catch Pablo Escobar. We've got some of the greatest uh, special operators and assets available in the world at that time, bringing in unbelievable intelligence. Javier is going over and saying, Colonel, we need to get out here. You know, we need a, we need a group of guys to go out and conduct a raid. And he's like, well, you know what? We got uh, Reveille in the morning at 6 a.m. And then we got PT. And then we're going to have inspection. And then we're going to have breakfast. And then we'll consider going out. I mean, this guy's priorities were completely opposite of where they should be. He wasn't happy, you know, that the gringos were even involved in this. He's the wrong person. He should have never been assigned to that operation. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, Javier and I believe, and I, anybody else that actually knew what was going on at that time, we believe that if it weren't for him, Escobar would have been caught in three months or less. And quite honestly, I think he would have been caught in three weeks or less. But pajama pants got in the way, you know, and he's in charge. We couldn't override him. Yeah. And we, like I said, we go into a lot of detail. And so you're going to have to listen to that on the bonus content. But, um, JP, how long before Colonel Martinez makes it back? How long before he's officially back in charge of the uh, Bloca de Búsqueda? Yeah, it, it got to the point where we were calling our ambassador at the embassy, says Mr. Ambassador, because the ambassador was getting pissed. He was calling me at 2, 3 in the morning. Javier, uh, why didn't you all capture Paul? You all had him located. And I finally said, sir, listen, we can't get manpower to go out there. Uh, Colonel, his name was Pinzon, does not want to uh, send uh, troops. He's afraid. He he says he doesn't have a warrant, <laughs> a warrant for Pablo Escobar. Come on, you know. So anyway, he did not want to operate. So we finally started getting the idea to the ambassador. We need Colonel Martinez. Because Colonel Hugo Martinez, who was the first guy in the search, hated Escobar. And Escobar hated Martinez. So all these guys, and there were about 10 influential guys, very important. Uh, there was Major Aguilar, Major Gonzalez. They were the two head of the Dijin guys. These guys were, wow, these guys were, uh, they hated Escobar. They were go-getters. So they had all been sent to diplomatic missions, like Steve said. So once, like I said, the ambassador started saying something's wrong, we, we, we started telling the ambassador, 
answer, we need to get Pinzon out of there, bring back Martinez. So then all of a sudden, it was about two months that went by, and then we saw Martinez come into the base. It was like the whole complexion of the search changed. Everybody was glad to see Martinez. Everybody was like, wow, we're going to be able to get Pablo Escobar now. We got Martinez back. And you got to remember, Martinez and Escobar was personal. Escobar wanted to kill Martinez's family. Uh, Pablo Escobar used to write him letters saying he was going to kill his family. It, it was just, it, it was just something that uh, should not have happened. But this is Pablo Escobar going after their family. So anyway, so once Martinez got back, everybody knew that we had a chance of getting Pablo Escobar. And the original 10 guys, the Dijin guys, Aguilar, uh, Gonzalez, because this guy's also hated Pablo. They were uh, in Argentina, same thing as they had been uh, rewarded, you know, after. Uh, after Escobar had, was, uh, had uh, surrendered. So they were back. So those guys knew how to fight Pablo Escobar. Well, and that's good too, because you've really got to increase your operational tempo. And one of the things they do is you start bringing in some U.S. special operators like Delta you know, and SEAL team. And you guys also have the CIA down there. You've got some classified technology at that time that you're using to um, look for him. But Steve, kind of go into it. I mean, this... He he escapes in July of uh, 91, right? July of 91? June 92. June 92. I'm sorry. I'm just checking your memory, not mine. June of 92. <laughs> it's, it's a test I use. It's a, it's a test for, um, you know, testing your cognitive abilities. And, and I'm well, fully versed in this, you know. Well, and, and by the way, when you say bloque de busqueda, you sound like a Russian talking. That doesn't sound like uh, comrade, you know, Spanish you know. at all. You know, to the glory of Mother Russia, comrades. <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about that because during this time he's out, you're starting to get your operational temple back up, but there's a huge uh, development in the case, and it's the rise of what I call the rise of Los Pepes. So let's talk about how Los Pepes came about based on a letter that was received, um, and I think that was in '93, early '93. Yeah, it was. Uh, so what Los Pepes is, the Pepes stands for People Persecuted by Pablo Escobar. These are, they're, they're not heroes by any means. They are nothing more than a murderous group of vigilantes. And I mean, they're just as, they're just as dangerous. They're just as murderous as Pablo Escobar. The things that they are doing are illegal. Uh, you know, so that's not something we condone uh, because we enforce the rule of law. But here's the truth. What they did is Los Pepes took, took Escobar's tactics and used them against him. Everything from indiscriminate bombings to killing innocent people. What they did is they targeted anybody associated with Pablo Escobar or his family. And not just illegal, you know, people committing illegal acts on behalf of Pablo. They were targeting school teachers that might be teaching his children, attorneys uh, that were supporting the Medellin cartel politicians, uh, housekeepers, I mean, anybody that they thought was helping Escobar was a target. And they even adopted his tactic. You know, you, you, Javier described for you about the extraditables. When Pablo would set off a bomb, they would throw a card down that had that saying on there, the extraditables. We prefer a tomb in Colombia to uh, a jail cell in the United States. So Les Pepe's would make out their own cardboard signs and they would leave messages. You know, they want a credit. They want a Pablo to know we're coming after you. So this is somewhat of a psychological operation in addition to being, uh, you know, a murderous operation. 
they were blowing up and burning uh, buildings associated with the Escobar organization. Uh, I mean, just really used his own tactics against them. And they worked. This worked. And you know what was kind of amazing is when it first started, public opinion was in favor of Los Pepes. Because the the you know the the good people of Colombia that were not involved in criminal activities, they were tired of seeing Escobar's escapades. Well, we can name a TV show after that. Going Escobar's, Escobar's escapades. escapades. Hey, that is copyrighted, folks. Not to be used without the <laughs> without the permission of Ricky Bobby Inc. So there you go. So, uh, but the public opinion was in favor of Los Pepes. This went on for several months, but then uh, I guess Los Pepes yeah, let's, took it. Yeah, let's hold on to that before we give that. We want to tease that out. Let's cover okay. that. Let's go back just a little bit um, because I thought there was another interesting thing, though, too, because you had a lot of threats by Pablo, too, including him declaring war again in January of 93 when this was going on. But he, but Pablo was trying to pull a public relations stunt, too, I think, JP. He was trying to say that the Colombian National Police were killing and torturing people, but you guys actually had human rights monitors working with you while this investigation was going on. T- just let everybody know what that was like and what the role was of these uh, human rights monitors from the government. Yeah, and let me just preface it. In his letters, Pablo Escobar's letters, he would send them to the president of Colombia, to the press, to the attorney general, and all his letters were accusing Martinez as being part of Los Pepes, uh, playing uh I guess illegal uh, killing, going after his family members, killing his associates. So these accusations were being made in the press, per se, about Martinez, Los Pepes. Everybody was in cahoots with each other. And uh, so what happened then, which is, wow, something I never even would have thought of, but Colombia, because of all those accusations, sent a couple of uh, human rights attorneys to live with the Colombian National Police at our search block in Medellin. We already had Colombian, we had two two people at all times from the Attorney General's office. In other words, like an assistant U.S. attorney, right? You know, if you're in the federal or if you're in the state, the uh, district attorney, uh, an ADA, assistant district attorney, they were there to sign the search warrants, to look over the probable cause, to authorize raids. So they were important. But now, more important, they sent two of uh, Colombia's watchdogs, human rights people, and I'm glad they sent them there because they were there with us. We knew them. They knew us. And at the end, because all the accusations came in, especially on Americans, well, you know, on on me in particular because I was named, uh, the human rights people said, hey, this did not happen. We were there. This never happened. So they were, in essence, saved our butts, and this was, I credit Pablo Escobar for doing that well and javier i want you to admit now on on national podcasting as they say you know to millions of people are you now or have you ever been a member of los pepes or did you assist them in any way shape or form i plead the fifth on that sir (laughs) (laughs) because in the movie as we talk about in the series they kind of made you out to be this 
bat Pedro Pascal looked like he was feeding information right. to Los Pepe's and helping them out. But that's uh, not the uh, case. Uh, of course not. And listen to our podcast. Our podcast will tell will, will tell you the truth. And of we course, go into that, depth. that never happened. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but anyway. I just wanted to wanted to give you the chance to either confirm or deny. You know the rumors that are out there. So, <laughs> hey Steve, uh, let's talk a little bit too because at one point um, there was this guy called El Chopo, Mario Castaño Molina. Uh, and he was kind of, you know, and another guy too called Chaplin, uh, who you guys thought was a spy for the Cali cartel. But this thing where Los Pepes and things started going sideways started happening about March of 93 when the search block went on a raid to capture this El Chopo. And he, they, they had his hotel room bugged and he, he ordered lunch and things kind of went to shit, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So... This was uh, this was a guy that the you know we wanted to capture alive because we wanted to flip him. This was a guy who was was in the very top echelon of Escobar's organization at that time that knew what was going on, that knew you know where Pablo's hiding out, knew about the uh, distribution routes for the cocaine, where the labs were, where you know he knew all of Pablo's secrets. So we really wanted to capture this guy alive, but when the police set up a roost to go to, you know, to deliver food there at his hotel room door. Uh, you know, Chopo came out with a machine gun and that was the wrong thing to do because the cops were, they were <laughs> locked and loaded and they had, you know, I, I, we don't make light of somebody dying, but you know, they had to kill him. And that's, that's the last thing we wanted to do. And that was similar uh, to what happened to Pablo's cousin, Gustavo Gaviria, you know, and, and Javier now, you know, he was in charge back then, and he, he's always told me that Gustavo was the brains of the Medellin cartel, wasn't Pablo. Gustavo is the one that set up the labs, that set up the, the distribution routes, that, you know, all the transportation routes, the different sales that were acquired, the gatekeepers, the whole and the ball of wax there when it comes to smuggling anything illegal. Gustavo was behind all that. So when they found him, you know, the way in Narcos it's portrayed is that the cops caught him and then executed him. That's not true. He was located in a house and the cops surrounded it. And that's another guy, you know, Javier had a plane on standby to extradite Gaviria, Gustavo to the United States uh, because that would just been a goldmine of information. But when he was ordered to come out, he came out shooting a machine gun and that's why he was killed. So, it, you know, it wasn't a good day for Chopo or Gustavo. No. And, and let me put this in perspective too, because by the time this happens, I went back and did a little research, you know, and this is the toll of Pablo's escape from uh, July of 22nd, 1992 to March of 1993, 136 Colombian police officers are killed. You know, and in 1992, Colombia had 29,000 homicides. That was up from 25,000 in 1991. Their population of the country was 34 million. Let's put this in perspective. In 92, the population of the United States was 256 million. We had 23,000 homicides. We, as a country that's basically three times larger than Colombia, had fewer homicides. Yeah, and this is what was, I mean, Steve, it's just the death toll is just staggering. It was Medellin, Colombia in 92 and 93 was the murder capital of the entire world. That's how dangerous it was. You know, there were times, Javier and I are living up in Medellin, there were times we'd get to go home on the weekends. We'd leave on a Saturday morning, come back on a Monday morning. There might have been as many, well, not might have been, there were as many as 300 murders that had been committed in two days over the weekend because of Pablo Escobar. That's how dangerous that place was. Well, speaking of dangerous, too, uh, let me continue on with you with this, because this is where things start changing for Los Pepes, and it really starts with the Centro 93 bombing uh, in April of 93. 
I mean, you and Connie were in a car. I mean, you heard about this happening while you guys were out, literally out shopping around that time, right? Right. We heard about the bombing. Uh, I called Javier. Uh, we met up. We actually went down to the site. Javier and I did. Uh, and this was, you know, quite some time afterwards. But still, the 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 situation was still in flux, I guess would be a, the way to, to describe it. And, you know, as you're driving up to this place, you can see the smoke, the black smoke rising in the distance. And then as you get closer, you hear the sirens. And you, you, know, you can only get so close because traffic was completely snarled. Traffic in Bogota sucks. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's a city of 8 million people, and they built enough roads for like a million. So it's just, it's horrific down there. But you know, so we park and we have to walk in and we're using our IDs to get through checkpoints and so forth. But the closer you get, then you start hearing the other sounds, the, the sounds of, of moans, crying, weeping, agony. Uh, I, I just don't have enough words in my vocabulary to accurately describe what you hear. And then, you know, not to get gross sounding here, but then you start seeing body parts. And then you get in and you see bodies that have been mangled. You see people that are, are still alive but have suffered horrific injuries. And then as you got in closer, you saw the iconic scenes of a fireman or a police officer carrying the lifeless body of an infant, of, of a small child who hasn't even had a chance at life yet. So th these are things, uh, you know, and, and obviously we're very serious about this now. We put all joking aside. These are things that just never go away. Uh, they stay with you for the rest of your life. It's and by no means there are Javier and I have never claimed PTSD. You know, I think we were able to handle it. Um, I don't know why. I think the good Lord gave us capability to handle these type of horrific activities in your life. Uh, but it's just something you don't forget. And it's all because of one person wanting to impose his own personal will on an entire country as well as the rest of the world. And that was Pablo Escobar. I mean, there's there's been a lot of horrific people, some evil people. You know, we say evil is coming. When Pablo was on this earth, he was one of the most evil. Is evil. there, man? He was one yeah. of the most evil people on the earth during his time. Hey, and, and JP, the whole thing about the Central ninety three bombing, it, they weren't trying to target the mall as much as they're trying to target just a specific location, right? Right, right. In the Central ninety three mall, the bombing that that was placed by Pablo Escobar. So, uh, but like I said, he wanted as many people killed as possible. Now, and I think you alluded to Los Pepes when you know when they first started off. Like Steve said, he was absolutely correct. I mean, they had a lot of backing. Later on, about the third month of their existence, they killed an attorney and his. Eight-year-old son was with him. The eight-year-old son was also killed. And, and this uh, was the day after the Centro 93 bombing is when they yeah, did this. Yeah, Los Pepes, Los Pepes in, in retaliation killed, I think there were two attorneys, but one of them had his eight-year-old son with him who was also killed. Then the press, the Colombians started saying, hey, whoa, whoa, so we're not in favor of Los Pepes. Look what they're doing. And uh, so they were losing a lot of credit with with the Colombians because now they had turned, you know, worst vigilantes, killing kids also. So that, that put a different perspective uh, on them. Yeah. And so now when this happens, you guys start going into summer and things kind of start slowing down. Now, now there's a couple things in play here. 
that we're going to play out over this too. And it's uh, uh, Colonel Martinez has a son, a lieutenant, who becomes expert at radio direction finding, which becomes a very key capability. So while that's going on, you guys are still trying to track Pablo, uh, Steve. But right, it goes dry. The summer's kind of like a the trough of despair. You guys are going. Are we actually ever going to catch this guy? Nothing's going on, is there? Yeah, and, and you know we had set up a one eight hundred number in Colombia for people to call in tips. And the United States, the State Department was offering a five million dollar reward for information leading to the information that would uh, lead to either his capture, arrest, or death. So Colombians would call in, but they didn't want to talk to Colombian police officers. They want to talk to the t- to the two gringos. You know, Why? You know, uh, just because they felt like there was corruption in the Colombian National Police. And you know, I, I'll be honest with you. When I went to Colombia, I thought it was going to be the most corrupt place in the world. What I found out was uh, we had a few minor acts of corruption during the hunt for Escobar, but it wasn't anything. I mean, it's very low level. Uh, there turned out to be some of the most honorable, hardworking police officers I've ever met anywhere in the world. So that you know that was a nice surprise to be quite honest with you, because you just think you're not going to be able to trust anybody in that country. But um, uh, that's kind of the way it played out there. Yeah, and one of the strategies to kind of help insulate uh, the search block and the other folks, you didn't bring in uh, troops from Medellin, right? Where did they bring them in from? Right. They that was uh, that was one of the keys to the second manhunt for Escobar being so successful. Is the first one, you know, they were pulling police officers, local police officers in. Well, they've got families in the Medellin area, and they the, could be the, threatened, they could be intimidated, etc. Right. Right, they go after their their families, and you know they're it's and we'd call it a state here in the United States. It was, Medellin's located in Antioquia, so what they did for the second manhunt is if you had family in Antioquia, you weren't allowed to be on the search block. So by bringing these other people out, they couldn't intimidate the police officers by going after their families. Wow, and again, that was one of the keys, like you say, to doing this. Um, one of the other keys, though, was tracing Pablo over the radio because you always want to talk to Pablo Junior. You know wanted to talk to his son. And Javier, there's a time where basically the CIA kind of wanted to uh, charge you with treason. <laughs> what what it, the hell were you doing, you treasonous yeah. bastard, you? <laughs> you know what? It's funny now. You know what? It was funny back then. I didn't care about this. And it was a chief of station, the boss of the CIA, and it was all Which is over the head spook for the CIA the head in the country. Spoke, right. You know, and, uh, you know, we had our contacts. And so we, we got Pablo Escobar's frequency. And uh, so I, I, I had it. And I gave it to the embassy people, the spokes, and I said, hey, guys, I think this is his frequency. I got it from a uh, an informant. And it so happened when they plugged in that frequency, it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Pablo Escobar and his son were talking. So that was a gold mine. That, uh, wow, everybody was like, wow, we have a chance now. So I brought in Colonel Martinez to listen to the tape. And I remember Colonel Martinez's face light up. And, you know, he didn't need no checking on uh, voice exemplar. He knew right away. And I did too. It was Pablo Escobar talking to his kid, one Pablo. Colonel Martinez 
his face lit up, and basically we that that energy was renewed. And all of a sudden, and all it was was Colonel to say, hey, "Can I have a copy, Javier? Can you can you get me a copy of the tape?" I said, "Of course, Colonel." So I will go back to the spokes. Hey, give me a copy of the tape. And the guy didn't think twice. He said, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." And I guess something happened where he started thinking, so he called it in to his boss. The chief of station got involved. The next thing I know is Javier. There's a guy who wants to talk to you on the phone. So I get on the phone, and it's the chief of station. He starts yelling, cussing at me, telling me if I give Colonel Martinez a copy of the tape, I'm going to be indicted for treason. And deep down, I said, treason? What the hell is this about? It was a scared tactic, of course, but it did scare me, of course. You know, so I called my boss in Colombia, Joe Toth. I couldn't get a hold of him. Colonel Martinez is now knocking on my door. Javier, where's my tape? And I said, what do I do here? And you know what? Honesty is the best policy. I was honest with Colonel Martinez. I went and I told him the exact uh, truth of what was going on. I, I also never forget his face. He was just like looking at me in disbelief. And I even told Colonel Martinez, sir, if I'm you, I would kick all the gringos, including us, out of your base. This is your base. This is your authority. Uh, and he just could not believe what was going on. And so what I did. I did the next best thing. I gave, I said, Colonel Martinez, here's the frequency. So he started intercepting him with his equipment, didn't eat the gringos anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't give him the tape, but nobody said you couldn't give him the frequency. Exactly. So. It was my frequency. Yeah. I got it. So I said, Martinez, here's the frequency. And he loved it. <laughs> and I'm going to make a guess because normally when you deal with the CIA, and not that I ever have, you know, uh, and nobody ever really works for the CIA, you know, that's just yeah, a euphemism, right? Right. right. But, you know, normally when you deal with folks, they only tell you their first name, and it's never their true first name. So was it Bob, Dave, Bill, Steve? What was it? It was Paul. one of those. Yeah, Paul. Paul. It was yeah. Paul. There we go, Paul. <laughs> All right, Paul. Not his real name, but yeah, it's either that or Bob. You know. Anyway, so I digress again. Let's get back because Steve. The other thing too is, um, kind of this time was was, you know, like slow, but now with the frequency, now you're starting to get some information on Pablo. You guys actually have a chance to, to you, you think you've identified where Pablo is, and there's actually a chance to do a raid on Pablo and capture him. And Colonel Martinez changes his strategy. Uh, he wanted ground troops first and copter second. Tell us about this raid that almost caught Pablo. Well, so we would fly out with the Columbia National Police on Huey helicopter gunships on raids almost on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes we go out with the ground troops, whatever. And the, Steve, I do want you to clarify something here, too, because in Narcos, you you have never thrown anybody out of a helicopter, have you? I have never thrown anybody out of a helicopter. That is absolutely correct. Just, clar- <laughs> just clarifying for the <laughs> listeners out there who might have watched Narcos. Okay, go ahead. Nor have I seen anybody be thrown out of a helicopter, so... Hollywood is, uh, well, they're, they're pretty sick in the mind with some of the stuff they come up with. But, uh, so, uh, so you guys are going in on these 30 caliber, these, the Huey yeah. gunships with the 30. See, I'm having to help you remember the story here, Steve. <laughs> I don't know. I start thinking about things down there. Um, so, but the thing was in the mountains, you can hear a Huey helicopter coming five minutes before oh my you God. get there. The echo Hours. is just unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we go on these raids, most of the time there was nobody there. I mean, now that's not always true, but most of the time people would run off into the mountains or the woods or wherever. Uh, so what we decided to do this one time was we had uh, Pablo located in this house on the side of a mountain. And so the colonel decided, let's bring in ground troops. Well, the the sad thing was the hillside had been cleared off so that whoever was in that house could see 
vehicles coming. You had the high ground. It's a military tactic. You could see everything around you. Exactly. And he could see us five or 10 minutes before we got there. We had to travel up this little mountainous curvy road and he could see us. So when we finally got up there, you know, there's, there's uh, hot food on the plate. There's two females inside this little house. The bathroom has been remodeled to a very nice bathroom, which didn't fit the rest of the decor. Which, by the way, when you listen to the bonus content, you're going to realize the one piece of intelligence they knew if Pablo had lived in a place was what, Steve? The fancy bathrooms, gold-plated fixtures, <laughs> gold-plated toilets. You know, I don't know what that fetish was all about, but he had it. And and the two women there, you know, Pablo was known to keep one person there to be his cook, and the other person was there to, to take care of his personal needs, which she's usually a very young girl, sometimes even a juvenile girl. So... Uh, uh, you know, asked the girl, you know, asked the ladies there, was he just here? And they admitted they were scared to death, you know, and, and they admitted and he'd gone. What he'd done is he'd run out the back door, gone to the top of the mountain, gone back down over the back side of the mountain. Um, so, you know, there were multiple times when we came close, but uh, either through not using the best tactics, operational tactics to approach a place or through tips you know, or I don't, I'm not going to give him the credit of having this inner sense, you know, this cat-like instinct that he but, knew but something he had was a way coming. of he had a way of wiggling out of these very tight situations. He did. And you know what? The backside of that mountain was extremely steep. I mean, it was so steep that uh, our troops weren't comfortable trying to go in or, you know, follow him down that mountainside. And uh, I think we mentioned this and when we go into the in-depth interview, uh, how the Columbia National Police handled the backside of the mountain. And I, I won't well, the Dehean <laughs> decided to make use of those Hueys, didn't they, Steve? Yeah, they did. They they might have opened up the thirty calibers and threw some grenades. I know it's just the, the firing exercise. They just had to cycle the weapons, make sure that they would function, you know, when needed. So true. Uh, true. There you go. But That's the, a, a lot of trees died that day on that hillside. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, things are starting to accelerate though, because like I say, you're getting closer and closer. And one of the neat things is now we're getting into November of '93. I hate to give this away, everybody. I mean, but Pablo dies eventually. Um, so you can go Google this stuff. Spoiler and find it, alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But in November of 93, you guys now are back, have a good, op, what's called an op-tempo. The op-tempo is good. It's high. You're running operations. By the way, you're never supposed to leave the base. <laughs> yeah, like that worked. You know, <laughs> write me a memo, Murphy. I want to know why you left the base when you weren't supposed to. Oh, that'd be a lot of but memos. In, <laughs> but in November of 93, JP, um, the family tries to go to Frankfurt, Germany, where they owned properly or properly property, right? <laughs> but but this is he's getting desperate, obviously, right? So there. So tell us about this whole operation of they're trying to go to Frankfurt because you get to do something. I think very few people have ever had a chance to do, and it was on the direct orders of the ambassador. Yes. And it was first because of Los Pepes. Remember, we've mentioned Los Pepes, yep. the vigilante group. Pablo was so afraid of Los Pepes killing his family. He was trying to get him out of Colombia. So the first time he tries to send him where? To Miami, Florida, USA. How they got visas, we do not know. Uh, and I'm the one who stopped them at the airport in Medellin. I, uh, the ambassador told me to tear up their visas. We did not want them to leave the country. We wanted them to stay in the country. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I happened to be in Medellin. We spot them, and it's, they got everybody getting on a, on an airplane going yeah, to Miami. Yeah, but JP, tell people about this, this the, 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 the 
passports are sacred. I mean, yeah. you're not supposed to mess with these no, things, no, and here you yeah. are ripping visas right. out of them. <laughs> yeah. it, because it, this was under the orders of the ambassador, yeah, and you are right. A, pace, a passport is sacred. You cannot uh, rip anything off of them. I don't know. There's a safeguard all over the world on passports, but the ambassador, under his order, says you will rip their visas out, which I did. And the ambassador told me to tell them if they want to get visas, tell them to come into the embassy, and we'll give them visas. <laughs> But that was kind of funny. They never took us up on that. Yeah, uh, but, but but Escobar, being the 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 narcissist that he is and the ego maniacal killer that he is, he actually appealed to the U.S. government and ended up doing a interview by fax with the New York Times. And guess what does he promise to do this time, Javier? In this uh, interview, yeah, I you know he promises uh, to what uh, turn himself in and uh, yeah, let his family let out his, and I'll turn family, myself yeah, in again. Let his family out and I'll turn myself in. Obviously, and, we and knew that. Did was you not believe that? Work. Of course not. Nobody <laughs> believed that. Uh, but it, it was kind of uh, uh, like you said. It just goes back to and why Miami. So that means that Pablo Escobar still had a lot of connections. Some connections in, there in Miami. In, yep, yep, in the Miami area. So later on, about two weeks pass, and now we get information that they're uh, uh, going to board a, an airplane going to Frankfurt, Germany. So uh, Steve and I follow the family. By this time, it's well known. And now the Columbia Attorney General's office is protecting the family, you know, make sure they don't get killed by those peppers. So... Uh, uh, we we go to the airport in uh, in Bogota, the El Dorado Airport, and uh, you know this is all happening within like a couple of hours. So we're able to put a couple of our undercover officers. We put in an agent and a couple of uh, Colombian police officers on the same flight as the family, and it's going to Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, obviously, they're traveling in first class. In, Not to uh, Deutschland. That's Deutschland. it. Yep, yep. So in this time, you know the high Europe's the bosses take it over. Oh, there's meetings between Washington, Germany, uh, Colombia at the highest levels, and I think even the president of Colombia was involved. I mean, it was at that level, so we're out of the picture. And uh, what we understand from our agents in Germany was that when they landed, there was a faction of German authorities who said you know what, we'll give them asylum, let them stay here. And another faction that said, no, nope, we want them out of our country. We do not want them here. And there were negotiations at one point. We thought the Germans were going to let them stay there. But then in the end, again, I don't know who finally decided, but the Germans said, no, nope, you're not welcome here. So they were forced to come back to Colombia, which is what we wanted forcing them to come yeah. back to Bogota, and that was playing right into our plan. Well, the Germans said, nine, nine, Mackenzie Schnell, you know, and, yeah. get out of here. And, and before we All go right. on to the final stage, you know what? He sent him to Frankfurt because he had property there, too. We property, later found yeah. out he had property in Frankfurt. Wow, this guy had all over the place, right? Well, so, Steve, so now we're getting into December, and Pablo's days are numbered now. I mean, we know that because, again, spoiler alert, he gets killed this month, uh, early Christmas gift. Um, so he is, it's December of 93 now. One of the big things that starts helping you track this down, like we talked about earlier, was uh, Colonel Martinez's son, Lieutenant Martinez. Starts me. He, he's one of the original geeks with RDF equipment. How it, talk about this radio direction finding? How important that becomes in terms of tracking down Pablo and a couple of the mistakes Pablo makes 
that enables you guys to track him down? Well, one of the things we haven't explained to our listeners yet is that the cell phone technology back then is not, it was not 3G, 4G, 5G like we enjoy today. Cell phones operated off of radio frequencies. So if Pablo wanted to thwart our efforts to listen to him, all he had to do was turn the dial to a new frequency, and then it was up to us to try to find out what that new frequency was. And if you know anything about the radio frequency spectrum, there's thousands of frequencies in that spectrum. So it was, it was a, I'm not saying a monumental task, but it wasn't. But it was a needle in a haystack type of thing. Exactly. Now, the challenge to Pablo was the people that he wanted to talk to on this new frequency, he had to get the frequency to them. You know, and there's this massive manhunt on. So it wasn't an easy, an easy thing for him to do at all. He also knew that uh, we had the technology to pinpoint his location uh, because we've been doing it for quite some time. Lieutenant Martinez, who self-taught himself, you know, to, to use this equipment, uh, did a phenomenal job. So he knew he couldn't stay on the, long, the, the phone very long, couldn't stay on the line very long. Well, on uh, December 2nd, 1993, that's when Lieutenant Martinez was out. Now the... And Steve, before you get into that, go back to the first, though, because on that day, if if, if, if the research is right here, the notes is right here, right? As, as, you're, as they're overhearing him speak to Juan Pablo, Pablo issues some new demands, right? It's like he wanted to talk to the Colombian president and members of the press. He was going to surrender again. And if they did not sur- and if they did not talk with him and allow him to surrender, what was he going to do again for the third time? He was going to declare a war against the country of Colombia like none of us had ever seen before. That was his threat. And, and believe me, that was not something any of us wanted to see. You know, we're talking, uh, we're not talking thousands of murders that he committed. We're talking tens of thousands of murders yeah. that he committed. So and his his prior history shows you that he can he can carry out a war. I mean, he'll figure out a way oh, yeah. to, to kill people. Yeah, he's he yeah. doesn't make idle threats. Yeah, and the reason I wanted you to hold up there too because this this is a big inflection point too for uh, JP because JP on December 1st you get called into the ambassador's office on what ends up being a big red herring a goose chase. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, real quick. And and I was in Medellin and the ambassador calls me on the phone and he wants me to go to Miami because there's an informant and the informant's name is Navigante who is well mentioned uh, in our podcast and in other documentaries. Anyway, so uh, Navigante gets a hold of the ambassador that he wants to talk to me only but that Pablo Escobar is in Haiti and he knows exactly where he is. So (laughs) I know, I know. And I tried to argue with the ambassador. I said, sir, we have him located. We're very close to him. I I know he's in Medellin. The ambassador did not want to hear me out. He says, if you don't go to Miami, I am kicking you out of the country. So obviously, I had to get a flight to go to Miami to talk to the informant. And uh, so I'll... Hey, JP, uh, right there, though, let people know the power the ambassador has in a country. Because I think a lot of people might think, well, isn't he just like another bureaucrat or a figurehead? No, no. What is the yeah. role of an ambassador in a country? Yeah, the role of ambassador is like the president, the representative of the president. He's got the authority to kick you out, and he has the authority to put you on an airplane within an hour. So he is the president's representative. And he controls everything the, that goes on in there, from CIA to DEA to FBI to mil- whatever is in there. He has the, basically the same authority as the president would have, except in that country. Exactly. He's the boss of everybody, all the agencies and if you don't obey him, he's got that uh, power to kick you out. 
And, and that's why I wanted folks to understand it, because when the ambassador gives you an order like that, as much as you know that was bullshit, and it's like there's no way he could be in Haiti because his radio is not going to go that far. The RDF equipment says he's in there. You have to basically salute smartly and say, yes, sir, and get on that plane. And that's what I did. I got on the airplane, and uh, before Steve starts, because uh, he's got a you know great understanding of what happened, but the person who tells me Pablo Escobar has been killed is the informant. When I see him in Miami, he's on the phone. He puts the phone down and says, Javier, they just killed Pablo Escobar. So that's uh, how I found out my uh, Escobar news. So now let's get into it. December 2nd, 1993, a date which will live in infamy. I always wanted to talk like one of those big radio announcers. You know, <laughs> you think about FDR, December 7th, 1941. You know, so December 2nd, 1993, this is Pablo's Got Hours to Live. Again, spoiler alert, he dies pretty soon. But Steve, tell us about December 2nd. I mean, you, you know you're getting close, but there's no real reason to believe today's the day, is it? Not really. I mean, uh, we're starting to get better leads in. We had been for uh, several weeks, uh, especially since his family had returned from Germany. Uh, but the excitement within the base was at a high level. You know, we had, we just all felt like something good is about to happen. So that day, you know, December 2nd, we got up early. Uh, you, just, you went through your daily activities, and that was – I'd go over and check with the other Americans there. We had uh, Delta Force and, and SEAL Team 6 was still with us. Was uh, Chuck Norris there, by the way? Was he was he double Uzi sling anywhere near there? You know what? If, if we'd had Chuck with us, we might have ended this a lot sooner. But, no, he wasn't Pablo available. would have turned himself in, yeah. I think he was making a movie or something, you know. He had priorities. <laughs> But, uh, you know, then you go over and check with the wire room, the, the, uh, you know, there's a room there where, uh, the Columbia national police were doing what telephone intercepts, went to the 800 number room to see if there's any new tips came in overnight. Then you go and check with the Colonel's executive staff. And so you report back to Bogota. You're just going through your daily routine there. And Steve, I don't want, I, I do want to interrupt because I want to make a point, but, but really a lot of your people think that you're just out there in the field all the time doing stuff, but really a lot of your routines, even during the stay were making reports, you know, doing other things other than just actually being in the field. Oh yeah. That's, that's one big error in narcos is they don't show you how much freaking time we spend writing reports. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're the government, we're supposed to create a bureaucracy here, you know, and, and it, you know, we're known as the Drug Enforcement Administration. There's a lot of administration that goes on. So anyway, uh, Lieutenant Martinez was out, though, and our Dehean, Javier and I worked with a very elite group of Columbia police officers called the Dehean Unit. And it was like an operational intelligence unit. They'd collect their own intelligence, and then they would go do the operations on it. So top-notch guys, man. We These are the guys that we trusted our lives with and, you know, lived with on a regular basis, eight just had become really close with them. So they're out scouring uh, Medellin trying to find Pablo. You got Lieutenant Martinez is out with his radio directional finding equipment trying to pinpoint Pablo's frequency because we, now we know the frequency because Javier had an informant that got it for us. So on December 2nd, uh, Pablo's used to calling the president, like you'd mentioned earlier, members of Congress, the press. Right now, nobody wants to talk to Pablo. The only people that want to talk to him or that would talk to him was his son, Juan Pablo, and his family. So on that particular day, Pablo gets on the phone. You know, uh, Lieutenant Martinez starts picking up on the signal. He's using the equipment to try to, to triangulate into Pablo's location. Um, his first opportunity uh, in which he had, you know, to find Pablo, 
identified a warehouse, and this is portrayed in the, in the Narco series. So the Dahin unit rolls in, they conduct a raid, and it's an empty warehouse. They're like, holy cow, you know, and I mean, everybody's looking at Lieutenant Martinez, like, you know, first of all, you're a geek, and second of all, you gave us a wild goose chase. Well, you got to remember, Lieutenant Martinez is the son of Colonel Martinez, and everybody has ultimate respect for him, and and Lieutenant Martinez was extremely intelligent. Javier and I loved him. I mean, he was he would come and, and just really explain things to us, and <laughs> he, he would tell us the things about how the equipment worked. We had no idea what he was talking about, but just like, oh, that's great. Just nod your head and go, uh-huh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what happened was there was a body of water close by, and bodies of water will affect the way that radio frequency sound waves travel through the air. So once he realized that body water was there, he made the adjustments, recalibrated his equipment, and goes after Pablo again. Well, this time, it, it's showing him to drive down the street, and he's got he's got a driver because he's the passenger. They're in plain clothes, they're in an unmarked car, and in the narco series, it shows that they're in police uniform. That's not true. As he's driving down the street, his little meter, you know, he's having to hold an antenna out the window first of all by his hand. You know, which is very odd to see, right? That's not something you see every day. But his little meter is telling him that the signal is coming from the left. And he told us, he looked up, and there's Pablo looking out the window with a phone up to his ear. And he said Pablo's looking at him. Now, you would think that Pablo would have reacted by seeing somebody riding down the street holding an antenna out the window, right? But we went back and listened to the conversations because all this was being tape recorded. You know, Pablo's phone was being intercepted. There was never any any indication that Pablo realized that something wasn't quite right, and the only and I'm not sure he would have known enough to know at that point that that was RDF equipment. I mean, it was like so. There's something sticking out of a car. Now, it probably should have raised you know his the antenna up, but it's like hell. If you know back in '93, I wouldn't have known what it meant. Maybe somebody's trying to get a TV signal and they're driving around. You know? Yeah. Oh, and the and you know the only explanation we've ever come up with is that. You know, when you're so engrossed in a conversation, he's Pablo is issuing instructions to his son. You call the president's office. You call the members of Congress. You call the press. This is what I want them to tell. You know, I want them to print this. And so we're thinking that he's so engrossed in his conversation, he doesn't really see, he doesn't comprehend what he's seeing as he's seeing it, you know, because right. he's in his mind in this conversation. So, I mean, when that happens, now I'm I'm back at the base. Narco series shows that I was on the roof when this raid took place. That's not true. This I was back at the base, so I am standing in the room with all the gringos though, because we're you know it's it's kind of nice to have fellow Americans to talk to occasionally. And uh, I notice out in the quad area of the, the, I see the colonel's executive staff rushing to his office, and that's always a sign that you know something important's happening. So I told the other gringos, and I made it over to Colonel Martinez's office. And everybody's standing there. Martinez is on a handheld walkie-talkie talking to the Dahin guys. And so he motions for me to come on in, and, and which that was a testament to the relationship that Javier and I had with Colonel Martinez that he brought us in to listen to things like this. And what it was was his son, Lieutenant Martinez, reporting what he had just found. The Dahin guys are responding immediately to conduct an operation. Martinez, the colonel tells him, listen, secure the location. Do not let him get away. We're loading up the troops. We're coming out to back you up. But whatever you do, do not let him get away. Well, back to base, to load up 600 people is not something you do in a matter of minutes. It takes a little while. <laughs> You've got to get you can't the Uber out. everybody in one car. Yeah. Oh no, you got to get the vehicles out. You got to issue weapons. They weren't allowed to carry weapons with them around the base all the time. You know the 
the lower ranking uh, police officers. So it took a while to get that to happen. Well, the the Heen guys get there and they said, screw this. So they sent a couple guys around back. They used debt cord and blow the front door. Debt cord is a, an explosive device that the military uses. And they uh, got a, it, was this some of the training they got from the SEALs and Delta uh, in terms of breaching doors and stuff like that? Absolutely. That's Delta and, and, and the SEALs spent weeks teaching them raid tactics, you know, successful raid tactics, everything from how to breach a door to how to conduct a search, how to do a dynamic entry. Just it was unbelievable what they uh, the training that they got from our, our special operators. So they, they make entry. This is a three story row house. Uh, there's nobody on the first floor. The first floor consisted of a garage kitchen combination, believe it or not. You could pull your car right up to the counter there in your kitchen if you wanted to. The original drive-in. There you go. And and there's some there's a bathroom down there, some storage rooms and so forth. But then when you get to the second floor, that's where your living room is, your dining room area, that kind of thing. And that's where they had seen Pablo was on the second floor. So they make their way up to the second floor, and they, and they know what's they know what's in there. So you know they're they're locked and cocked. They're ready to go. They're ready to engage. Well, as they get to the second floor, Pablo and his lone Sicario, and and I say it like that because this was one of the biggest surprises we had. Pablo is known to have as many as five hundred Sicarios. That day, his organization had been decimated to the point where he had one bodyguard. That's all he had. My, how the mighty have fallen. Absolutely. So the, the bodyguard has already got up to the third floor. Pablo's making his way up. The cops start yelling at him, you know, drop your weapons, don't move. Uh, one, of the, one of our friends, one of our Dehean officers, is ready to advance up the steps, and he trips and falls, which saves his life because Pablo shoots at him, and the round goes over his head and hits the wall behind him. The bodyguard gets up to that third floor. They've got no place else to go. This is a floor of bedrooms. He gets up to a window. Now, on the back side of this row house was a two-story row house. So what the bodyguard does is he jumps out that window onto the roof of the two-story row house behind the row house that they're in. Okay, does that make sense? So he starts making his way across the roof. Well, the, the two cops on the back side order him to drop his weapon and stop. He makes a mistake of firing at them, and they shoot him. They killed him. You know, they shot him. He fell off the roof and landed on the ground at their feet. Now, Pablo gets up to that third floor window. He knows the cops are coming up. He's already engaged them in a gun battle. He jumps out the window onto that second floor roof. Adjacent to that was another three-story row house. So he's using that wall of that three-story to back up so the guys on the ground can't see him you know, on the backside. But he knows the cops are coming up to that window, and they'll have him in a crossfire. So he makes a dash across the roof. You know, The cops get to the window. They order him to stop, drop his weapons. He's, he empties, he's carrying two 9-millimeter pistols. He empties his weapons. Of course, they catch him in a crossfire. Pablo's killed on that roof that day. Now, he, he struck three times, once in the back of the leg, once in the butt cheek. Both of those are what we call knockdown shots, but neither are kill shots. The kill shot was a round that went through his right ear, um, you know, and obviously that's what killed him. Um, as I'm back in Colonel Martinez's office, it gets eerily quiet. Nothing's coming across the radio, and finally we hear one of the majors, one of the Dehean majors comes up. I believe it was, was, was it Gonzalez, Javier? No, Aguilar. Aguilar. Yeah. He comes up and he's reporting what happened and he finishes by Viva Colombia, Pablo is dead. 
So that's when the high-fiving, the back-slapping, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a true feeling of elation that maybe Pablo Escobar is finally taken care of. We've heard this before. So I was I, about to say, how many times have you been close? We've got Pablo. We've got this. We've got that. I mean, I'm just concerned that maybe he's got a body double or something. Well, what gave me confidence was that it was our Dehean guys that we trusted uh, and also seeing the elation of Colonel Martinez because here's a guy that didn't get excited easily. So what I do is I take off running back over to uh, to the wire room to call back to our boss, Joe Toft, in the embassy to let him know what's just happened. Now, we're under orders. Javier and I are under orders. All the gringos are under orders not to leave the police base. Javier and I never abided <laughs> by those rules. You know, um, Rules? What are rules? <laughs> well, rules are for fools. We're, like, we're, we're going. We're rolling. That's how we roll. It's like we say. It wasn't a law. You know, We didn't break any laws. It but... was a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> we broke those rules. <laughs> so anyway, I can't get toffed on the phone. So I finally, I, First of all, I can't get through. All the lines are busy. So I call the admin office, the DEA admin office. One of the secretaries answered the phone. I said, go get Mr. Toff on the phone immediately. It's an emergency. And this was Angie was the girl. And so she runs off. Well, it, it takes Toff several minutes to get on the phone. And it, it seems like a lifetime. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, just answer the freaking phone, you know. Well, finally, Joe, Joe Toff picks up the phone. And his first words to me are, they killed Pablo Escobar. I'm like, how the hell did you know that? That's what I'm calling to tell you. And he said, <laughs> well, I just got a call from the general, the head of the Columbia National Police. Joe Toff was one of the first people he called to tell him that Escobar was dead. Oh, wow. That's how good the relationship was between DEA and the Columbia National Police. So, uh, you know, I said, well, that's, that's why I was calling. He said, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get out there and confirm. We don't want another silly rumor flying around that they, no. you know, this is not Pablo Escobar. So I say, okay, well, you know, listen, you know, the, the deputy chief of mission, which you, as you know, is the number two guy under the ambassador. I said, he, last week he threatened to kick me and Javier out of, out of country. If we leave the base up here again, and he said, I'm giving you an order. I'll handle that. You get your ass out there and find out if that's Pablo. So I run back to the barracks. I grab my weapon get my cameras. I always had cameras with me and I come running out in the quad. The entire search block has left. So Steve is Steve is the last guy standing with no ride. <laughs> it's it's me, the other gringos, and the guards on the gates. <laughs> well, and, and there's one thing we've put into the bonus content. There was a CIA guy who got crosswise with everybody, and had he stuck around, you might have had a ride. But he'd already vomitos out yeah. of there with the last set of wheels. And I wouldn't rode with him anyway. <laughs> Just out of principle. <laughs> So I'm, I'm standing there trying to decide what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going, okay, well, I don't know where a rental car agency is. They don't have Uber. You know, Uber wasn't even in existence <laughs> back then. I'm thinking, even if I call a taxi, I don't know where to tell him to go. I don't have an address. Lo and behold, here comes a single Jeep driving back into the base, and it's Colonel Martinez. He's got his driver and one bodyguard. And he's like, Steak, what are you doing? You know, because they couldn't say Steve, so my nickname was Stick. He's like, what are you doing? I said, Colonel, I need to ride out there with you. Can I ride with you? And he's like, get in the car. And he had come back to get his video cameras, the reason he came back. So I arrived out to the scene with Colonel Martinez. We get out there, you know, start going through the scene. Uh, I get up to the third floor window where every, you know, where Escobar had jumped out of with his bodyguard. And on the roof, on that second floor roof row house, all our Dehean guys were standing there over the body of Pablo Escobar. And I yelled at him. They all... You know, they didn't fire their weapons, but they're holding their rifles Thank in God. the air. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's just, Viva la Colombia. Absolutely. So 
we eventually, I, fall, I, I stay with Martinez. We make it around to the backside. We climb up a ladder and get up on the roof there. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's to me, it looks like Pablo Escobar. All the photographs of his body that you've seen on the Internet or anywhere else, you know, we took those photographs. There are photographs. Um, and, and I'm still thinking, well, we still need confirmation, either, you know, fingerprints, dental records, whatever. Well, then Pablo's mother and his sister show up. And they're down there, and, and I'm trying to maintain a low profile because you know me, Morgan. I'm about as white as you get. I don't blend into a Hispanic country. <laughs> and let me see, in those infamous pictures, too, you're like wearing this bright red shirt, so it's easy to That's pick it. you out of the crowd. I was a trendsetter. Yes, I was. So anyway, I'm trying to stay a little bit in the background, but I want to watch them to see what they do. Well, the sister... She finally just kind of bulls her way up through the crowd. And, you know, I mean, there's thousands of people who come out because they've heard this massive gun battle. And she walks over to the body of the bodyguard who's laying on the ground. And she starts just berating the police. That's not Pablo Escobar. You guys have killed the wrong man. You're the most inept police officers in the world. I mean, she's just really giving them down the road. And they let her go through her spiel. And then finally they say, hey, climb up the ladder, take a look up on the roof. So she climbs up there as I'm watching, and when she sees Pablo Escobar's body, I knew without a doubt at that point this was the real you Pablo see the, Escobar. I mean, family identifies him. That's, I mean, that's, you hate to say it, but it's golden. It's like that's the idea you needed. It was. She broke down. You know, she realized that her brother really was dead. Now, you know, it's going to take quite a while to process a crime scene like this, and the media is starting to show up. Like my my sister in Tennessee told me she saw me a glimpse of me at one point on the CNN report. Well, Javier and I, you know, we've participated in this, but we want the Columbia National Police to have the credit. We, you know, we provided technical support. We were out there with them on a daily basis. But that day, the Columbia National Police needed the credit. You know, they needed yeah. the credibility back from the citizens of their country. So. Uh, I talked to uh, Lieutenant Colonel, a good friend of ours, Norberto Pelias, and and said, you know, hey, I need to get out of here. So he assigned a protection detail to me. They got me back to the base. Hours later, you know, the rest of the search block comes back. You can imagine everybody's happy. Everybody's elated. Uh, That night, we kind of went into a really heavy lockdown because we expected retaliation attacks. Retaliation, yeah. It was the quietest night I ever spent in Medellin. Oh, yeah. And I was going to ask, JP, are you back by that night then? Because, I mean, you're down there, Navagante. I mean, you, and the other thing to talk about that, but I, I want to ask you, you walk in and the first thing he says is Pablo's dead. I mean, where does that hit you? In the gut? In the head? I mean, the heart? Of course. Yeah, it hit me in the gut. I mean, here's the, and he's on the phone. He puts the phone down to Xavier. They just killed Pablo Escobar. And you know what? I was so, I, of course, you got to be mad. You're irritated. I didn't even talk to the guy. I just told I had another DA just to take me back to the airport. And there was a, a night flight that I always left uh, Miami to Columbia. It was, I don't know, it was about 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock flight. So I'm able to get on that flight. We make arrangements. And it's all the press people, the Univision, the Telemundo, Telemundo the people people. that you see on TV, other mainstream reporters on that flight. So I get into the same flight. I get there at nighttime. Then obviously I I go to Medellin the next day. You know, we say, 
you know, congratulations to all the guys. Yeah, but Javier, it's a testament to how you guys stayed in the background and let Columbia take the lead because nobody identified you on the plane. Had people known that here's Javier Pena, one of the two agents involved in tracking down Pablo, that would have been a freaking chaos on the damn plane. Yeah, yeah it, it was. And like Steve said, that's their glory. You know what? And I always remember Colonel Martinez saying, uh, telling Steve and I, you know what? Don't take this away from us. You know, we get accused of being the having the biggest drug traffickers. This is our day. This is our glory. Give us we a win here, folks. Yeah, give us a win here. So, of course. So, it, it was their win. Of of course, they're the get. They're the ones who get the credit. And that's not something we were giving them. This is something they earned themselves. They did. Yeah, they earned this. Yeah, I mean, they paid for it with the blood of soldiers and citizens and cops. Right. Right, you know, right. for years. Right, a lot right. like uh, like Steve and I said, a lot. We lost a lot of good police officers, friends. You know, and, and nowadays it's uh, just to take it a little bit further. You know, people refer to Javier because, and this is all because of narcos. You know, people say, "Oh, you guys are heroes." We're not heroes. You know, we just did our job. But every place we speak to, any audience we ever speak to, whether it's in person, whether it's on TV, on radio, whatever. We make sure that they know who the true heroes are, and that's the Colombian mm-hmm. National Police because they took their country back from this piece of crap. Yeah. No, I, and look, I, like I said, I made a couple trips down to uh, Colombia. You know, just great country, great people. Um, although I almost didn't make it out or into the country one time. Uh, my quick story about El Dorado Airport. Well, this is I'm a testament down to your Spanish. Ah, my Spanglish, yeah. <laughs> no, my, my, my Espanol was perfecto. I, I just had the wrong context. So me and a guy who used to work at the CIA, um, we were going down there to work on Plan Colombia, and we had been talking about the FARC. Uh, you know, and we get into this in great detail on the bonus content, but the Armed, Armed Revolutionary Forces of Colombia, which is a grupo de terrorista, right? And... Uh, and but we're down there, and we're supposed to be tourists, which is tourista. So they go, "What's your purpose down here?" And I meant to say tourista, and I said terrorista. <laughs> and uh, which is probably more <laughs> truth. Probably, I was going to commit terrorism on a couple of bars and stuff. You know, drink them, drink them, drive it. Now, so just you saw the eyes get wide, and it's like, oh my god, you know. So. We had to do some fancy talking to get ourselves into this. After that, I promised no more practicing Spanish oh, you know, you at the airport. There you go. <laughs> oh, oh, this is good stuff. Well, hey, let, let's kind of wrap this up because what I want to do is uh, talk about how this, how did you guys go from this to Narcos? H- how did this whole escapade, this whole deal, because this happens in December 2nd of 1993. Narcos on Netflix doesn't come out until 2015, right? 2016? 15, I believe it was. 15? I think. So, I honestly, I don't remember. But well, God, you, yeah, you just made so much money from it. It's like you can't oh, even yeah. remember. It's just. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish we had made as much money as everybody thinks we did. We did. Uh, but um, in February of 2013, I got a phone call from a retired U.S. Marine that we'd worked with in Colombia. He's a good friend of ours. Hadn't seen him in over 20 Steve, years. Steve, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. What have we said? There's no such thing as a retired U.S. Marine. It's a Marine formerly on active duty. There you go. All right. So he uh, he calls, and so we catch up on the phone, and I said, so uh, why are you calling me? You know, are, are you in town? You want to go get dinner or something? And he's like, no, I live here. He said, but the reason I'm calling, he said, there's a Hollywood producer who wants to talk to you and Javier about the Escobar story. And his name's, uh, you know, the, the Marine's name is Gil Macklin. I said, Gil... You know, we've been down this road with uh, two other producers and, you know, 
we didn't think anybody ever wanted to really hear the story. And when we talked to those two producers, they uh, wanted to take our story and, and really make it into political statements. And they had their own personal agendas. And that's not what we're about. And so, you know, we get our hopes up and then your, your hopes get dashed and you're disappointed. I said, so I, I appreciate you calling us, but we're going to say no. Well, I don't know. Oh, well, you, Steve, but, but why did you say no? Because we just really didn't think anybody was interested in the truth. You know, the true story about Pablo Escobar. What were you concerned that it was going to end up being like instead? Uh, well, the other two producers, one of them wanted to take uh, just one specific act and use it as a right-wing political statement against the administration at that time. And we're not into politics. That's not what we're about. Never have been and never will be. You know, and, and the other guy just, uh, I, being quite honest with you, I'm not sure what his personal agenda was, but it certainly wasn't anything to do with telling the true story. So I told Gil on the phone, I said, man, thanks, but no thanks. Well, you know, he got a little colorful with his language and blessed me out on the phone. Which Marines tend to do. <laughs> and he says, all I'm asking you to do is call this one guy. You can't do me a personal favor. All I can think of is that scene out of Full Metal Jacket with Arlie Ermey. You know, what is your major malfunction, Murphy? Yeah. What are the hell is it you are doing? Yeah, it kind of felt like that, too. So, uh, you know, finally I said, whoa, 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 okay, brother, listen, I will call this guy. And, and he said, well, here's his name. It's Eric Newman. And he gave me the phone number. So I called Javier and told him about it. And, and he's like, yeah, this ain't going to go anywhere. It's going to be like the other two guys. So I call Eric Newman and, and he gives me this little spiel. Uh, Eric is the creator of Narcos, by the way. Uh, and so I, he, after his spiel, I said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We've been down this road before and it just never works out. And, you know, good luck to you. Well, I'm pretty sure that Eric probably about fell out of his chair when I told him no, because Javier and I have learned that people will sell their souls in Hollywood to get on TV, you know, to tell their stories. I'm shocked, Steve. Shocked. You're kidding me. So that was February. He said, listen, I'm coming to Washington, D.C. on business. He said, would you meet me and have dinner with me and two writers? Just let us meet you in person, give you the full story. If you say it's no, it's no. And this is the honest God truth, Morgan. I'm thinking this is going to be a free dinner at a really good restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pick the restaurant. I'll pick. Oh, no, no, we're I, not going. We're not going to Denny's. That's for sure. This well, this was so fancy. I couldn't even read the menu. This was a French restaurant. Couldn't pronounce the name. <laughs> so, what is it? McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, Jaime and I did our research on these guys before they got there. You know, and I'm talking to them and and. February of 13 in March is when he came to Washington with the two writers. Uh, cops are pretty good at picking people out in the crowd. And so, you know, I'm walking around a restaurant and I, I, I could pick out the table. These three guys are sitting at, and I walk over to them and I just started giving them down the road. I, I heard you guys are holding drugs. I need you up against the wall right now. Spread them. You know what I'm talking about? And boy, they get the shock look on their face. Their eyes get real big and then they realize who I am. And so, you know, it was kind of a good icebreaker. And and we got along very well. And after they explained their story to me that night, we're getting ready to leave the restaurant. And Eric says, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, the first thing I'll do is talk to Javier. And I'll recommend we just pursue this and let's just see where it goes. And he said, uh, that would be great. That's what we want. And he said, but one more question. Why are you and Javier so hesitant to tell your story? And I said, Eric, the last thing that Javier and I ever want anybody to do is to glorify a mass murderer like Pablo Escobar. Yeah, he's not fucking Robin Hood here. That's exactly right. And Eric promised us that night. He said, I promise you now, we will never glorify him. We will portray him in an accurate light. And to our opinion, in our opinion, he's lived up to his word to this day. 
So that was March. Uh, by May, two months later, we had signed contracts with, we didn't know it was Netflix. It was another company name at that time because we probably would have asked for more money <laughs> if we'd known it was Netflix. Uh, at the end of June, I retired from DEA, and in July, Javi and I were sitting in the writer's room out in Hollywood starting to help them write the, the first series of, of Narcos. Yeah, and Javier, it's my understanding, too, that one of your requirements, you had very few requirements, but you wanted a lifetime supply of aguardiente. Yeah, yep, I did. <laughs> aguardiente, bandeja paisa, which is uh, a national dish in Medellin, great food, but uh, I never got into aguardiente. I threw up a lot on aguardiente. So. Oh, <laughs> nasty. That's nasty. Oh, and we go into some good stories about aguardiente. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yes, we do. The time, and, the time they thought, JP was about yep. to die. Yep, and how you drink aguardiente. It's always with little pieces of fruit, little pieces of coconut. <laughs> like, wow. Well, anyway, stuff like that. Yep. Hey, so, but JP, what's it like? You're out in Hollywood, and here you are. I mean, you're just a kid from Laredo, Texas, you know? Yep. that from uh, Hebronville, Texas, population 5,000. Very proud. Anyway, so we're there, and we take, you know, personal notes. We have photos. So we're telling the truth, the actual. And I could tell there were, they were interesting. In to, but anyway, we're, we're cops, so you know how it is. To, just the facts, ma'am. And uh, we're telling them all this, and they've written, uh, they've read every book on Pablo Escobar, so they have their own ideas. And uh, but you know, we're 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 thinking like cops. Anyway, so when we start getting the scripts, it's like, wow, this didn't happen. You know, I, I'm calling Steve like in a minute. Hey, what's something's <laughs> wrong here? Is there a mistake or? <laughs> You know, little did Why, we know. There's not enough women. That little, doesn't show me with enough women in this script. Little did we know. There's a couple of words called artistic licenses, and uh, that's what happened. Artistic licenses uh, took over. Yeah, but but the truth is, though, JP, is that um, the uh, the portrayal of your, uh, shall we say, dating capabilities and your prowess, that was not understated in the least, was it? Not at all. It's all true. And even <laughs> and even more so. <laughs> like I tell people, I wish that would have been true, man. <laughs> they did a great oh job. But you know what? They did a great job. The, the chronology, I tell them, the chronology is right online. You know, a lot of other stuff is not. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a great series. It's being watched all over the world. And, uh, you know, I Tell, you know, Steve knows when he came out, I said, man, no one's going to watch this. This is a bunch of uh, crap. And all of a sudden, it's one of the best shows uh, from Netflix. And you know, you know the old saying, Morgan, Hollywood's not going to let the truth get in the way of a good story. Oh, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> you know? Well, hey, let's close this up because, like I said, we've got bonus content. But Steve and I came up, we discussed this. We have a patented method. It's called the narcometer. And this is how we rate stuff, you know, scale of one to 10 kilos. So you get to go first, Javier. For the series Narcos, just the overall series. So we want to talk about two things. Number one, did you enjoy it? Scale of one to 10. One is you hated it. 10 is you loved it. And the second one is accuracy. You know, how accurate was it? Scale of one to 10 kilos. One, not even close. 10, spot on. So first of all, how did you actually enjoy the series Narcos? You know what? One to 10 kilos. 10, ten kilos. I enjoy it. You want to watch. You're, you're hooked on it. And we've, all over the world, people will tell us, man, I saw one, one show, then I, you know, I binge watched it all night. So it's on scale of 10 kilos uh, of pure cocaine. 
That's the way I would I would rate it. Yeah. Now, but for accuracy, considering artistic license, where do you rate that thing? One to ten kilos. You know what? On the accuracy, I'm I'm gonna rate it maybe seven or seven kilos. I mean, it is kind of accurate, but of course, there's artistic licenses, and you know, people would not like it if. Those licenses were not in place, so uh, yeah, people want to be entertained, uh, right? Right. So seven, even seven or eight, but it, it, it's it's good. It's good. Well, it would have had one kilos for it if you liked it. If they showed the amount of paperwork you had to do, right, Murph? <laughs> oh, and that's the truth. So your turn. One to ten kilos. How much did you like it? One to ten. I tell you what, I love the series. I'd give it ten plus kilos, like Javier said, hundred percent pure. Yeah, well, but now, the accuracy, what do you tell the audiences? So give us your rating on the the kilos for accuracy, but then tell us what you tell your audiences when you're out there speaking. I I would probably fall in between the six and seven kilo rating. Uh, And what we tell our audiences is about a third of what you see in the first three seasons of Narcos is true. You know, they, those events happen that are depicted correctly. The second, third, well, those events happen, but they've been changed. Either they've been dramatized more to make more exciting or, you know, just uh, uh, facts have been altered, so it's not 100% accurate, but it's kind of true. And then kind of I, like you being down there for the Avianca bombing or for the, you know, the shooting down yeah. of the carrier pigeon. Yeah. yeah. And then that, well, no, that would fall in the third category, <laughs> where it's just straight out make-believe uh, Hollywood. You know, my cat was not sacrificed on my front door. He did die in Columbia, but he was old and had a heart attack. Javier wasn't passing classified information to Los Pepe's. I was never kidnapped. But in the uh, in the uh, detailed episodes that you keep referring to, there's some some details. We get into it. There's some details in there that I think a lot of the audience will find surprising. Well, and I'm telling you, again, and it, one of the reasons we did this, too, is kind of capture this because you guys have written a book. So if you guys want to hear about this, go to DEA Narcos, or as I say, Dean Arcos, DEANarcos.com. You can down. You can get the book. You can see their speaking schedule, which is actually start starting to pick up again post COVID now. So you guys will be speaking in some places. But when we launch this, and it'll be GameOfCrimesPodcast dot com, and you know, and when we launch the bonus content, Steve, I think you were saying too, you have you guys have never gone into this much detail ever about what you guys have done in Columbia, right? And it's you know, it's like you said, we we start off by telling her about our careers, how we got involved in law enforcement, some of the. Some of the excitement and some of the funny things that happened in the different agencies we worked for and, and culminates with, uh, with the Escobar investigation. And one of the neat things I like we did with you, JP, too, was we, we set the context because a lot of people didn't understand what was going on, the rise of narco-terrorism, what was going on with the cartels, you know, the rise of the Sicarios. And so I think we get into a lot of good detail, too, in terms of understanding the context of the Avianca bombing, the killing of the attorney general, you know, things like that. Yes. And, and you know what? We told our audience, this is history. It happened. It's not made up. And we were there to witness it. So that's why... Please listen, uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast. That's right. God, I didn't even tell you to do that. You're already getting this. Subscribe to the <laughs> podcast. You know, tell your friends, tell their friends, friends, break into their house and subscribe for them. Just get their iPhone and, you know, hit that little button there. So there you go. we're not saying break into their house, but if you happen to be in there for any reason, just pick up their phone and, you know, start <laughs> subscribing, you know. There All right. Go. Well, hey, let me do this. Let's do quick final thoughts, you know, just, uh, you know, in terms of wrapping this up. Like I so said, we do go into a lot more detail. They've, you've got your book out there at DEANarcos.com. Steve, what was your biggest takeaway, um, you know, after leaving Columbia? You were down there for three years and you came back. What was your biggest takeaway from this operation to capture uh, Pablo? Oh, there was a couple. Uh, 
personally, uh, when I left Columbia, you know, when in DEA, when you're going to new offices, uh, when you transfer in a new office, as the new guy, you kind of have to prove yourself. After being in Miami for four years and Columbia for three years, I didn't feel like I needed to pr- prove myself to anybody anymore after that. And quite honestly, the job became a lot more fun. You know, it's, I mean, I still work my butt off. Uh, my father instilled a, a strong work ethic in me. And, uh, you know, my wife, <laughs> my wife and daughters rarely saw me because of the job. But, uh, you know, that was, I guess, on a personal level, that was uh, one of the life lessons for me. But on a, a different level, it was an honor to have been able to, to live in Columbia, to get to know Colombians, because the law-abiding citizens there are some of the greatest people in the world. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Uh, just enamored by what took place down there. Um, but to have had the opportunity to work and live with the Colombian National Police and to see how professional they are, uh, to see how giving they are, um, it, it's an honor that uh, I don't think I could have gotten anywhere else. And we're kind of used to that in the United States because, you know, we we look at law enforcement, the law enforcement culture as a family type of event for us, but not so much on the international level. So that was uh, that was one of the highlights of my entire 38 years as a police officer was working with the Columbia National Police. How about you, Javier? What's your quick takeaway? Basically the same thing. I said it was an honor. It was a privilege uh, to work with them. We learned a lot. Uh, We know that they're one of the highest uh, ranked uh, police forces right now. They did everything to take their country back. And uh, some of the greatest police officers we know are in Colombia and the citizens. The citizens are great people. Uh, We still have a lot of good friends. Uh, We encourage tourism to Colombia right now. It's a beautiful uh, place. People are are friendly. And uh, like I said, we were part of history that uh, there's a lot of people with lies out there. Uh, we saw it firsthand, and this is one I want people to know that we were witness to uh, to a uh, part of history that I wish never should have happened, but it did. Yeah, but that's why it's called history. You know, you can't change history, but we can learn from it. And by the way, if you're in Bogota, uh, tell my friends I said hello. The guys, I'm sure from CIA that we intruded in on their dinner party. You'll hear about that in the bonus content. So, uh, hey guys. This has been great. Uh, again, uh, check out gameofcrimespodcast.com. Subscribe. Tell all your friends to subscribe. We will let you know when the bonus content is available. And we want to thank you, Steve, and you, JP. This is me saluting you. Thank you guys for what you did from one cop to another. Thank you. And stay tuned because there's more, isn't there, Steve? Oh, yeah. You're, you're not going to believe some of the people that we have access to. And we're not just talking to DEA folks. People, it's uh, we've got law enforcement agencies from all over the United States, all over the world. We've already conducted interviews with uh, police officers from Canada, from from England. We've got, uh, I think, a Pakistani officer lined up. We're we're planning on talking to some of our uh, friends down in Australia, New Zealand, Australia. Yeah. 
And it's not just drug related. We're bringing in some of the biggest cases. Well, we'll be talking to Dave Reichert, the Green River Killer, too. Uh, Ed Davis, a friend of mine, the the Boston Marathon bombing. So, hey, we got some good stuff. As they say, good stuff. You're going to hear interviews of people here. And this is the cool thing. You know, this is what we think sets us apart is it's not us telling you a story. You get to hear it from the people that actually did it. That's right. And this is, uh, we've got access to people that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So this should be a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to it. Just need your support. All right. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. That's in order. Just like Arlie Army would say, and your friend, the Marine. Let's get it done, people. All right. Stay tuned. We'll give you more information in the outro. Well, folks, that concludes episode one of Game of Crimes podcast. You have now been thoroughly indoctrinated into the ways of how DEA captures the most dangerous people on Earth. That's right. And it's time to wake up because the show's over. Show's over. Now, hey, so we we hope you guys enjoyed the show. We will come up with, you know, we're working on our format, but we just, we wanted this episode one will be, the intro will be longer. You know, and with the outro, we just want to let you guys know that, hey, look, number one, remember, go on uh, iTunes, rate us, give us five stars. Um, We care what you guys think. We care, you know, that we deliver a quality product. And look, we say that not just for funny sake and not just because to say it, but literally, and I hate to use that word literally because it always sounds like a valley girl, literally. But, you know, but when Steve and I would do work, words meant things. I mean, what we wrote meant things. Our credibility was on the line. You know, we signed our name to a piece of paper that said this happened. It was our credibility. So we want to make sure we deliver great quality for you guys, you know, and that you like what you hear and give us ideas. Go to the website, get a hold of us on our social so you can find us on Twitter, uh, Game of Crimes, uh, Facebook, Game of Crimes. Uh, Instagram, Game of Crimes Podcast. Go to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've also got a contact form there. And Steve, you know, I just thought for episode one with what you and JP talked about, if you think this is great, guess what? Guess what's coming out? What what is what is Netflix doing? What 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 are we waiting for to drop here pretty soon? Oh, uh, I can't tell you that. I might get in trouble with Netflix, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good because we have insider information. All right, so that's how you find us. Hey guys, and guess what's coming up next week? This is again, uh, we're very fortunate to early on have recorded this with George Young. Um, he was Pablo Escobar's business partner. Johnny Depp played him in the movie Blow. Let's play a quick clip of what you're going to hear next week. Did you ever meet Raul Castro? Yeah, one time. Where was that? Over in Cuba. Wow. What and were you what were you doing in Cuba, George? <laughs> I used to sell Cuban airspace. What was the going rate? Did they charge you per trip? Did they charge you based on the size of the load? How did you pay? Per plane load. Per we plane. didn't tell them how much or whatever. Okay. Do you remember what the rate was per load? I don't know. It was probably a million dollars. Steve, I'll tell you, I mean, it's it's that gravelly voice. It's that, um, uh, you know, even George, it, it's kind of prophetic, but George says, you know, he he knows he doesn't have long. And one of the quick things you guys will find out, George said it wasn't all the product he put up his nose that that was going to kill him. You know, it was all the drinking he did. Yeah. And, and you know, just to tease you a little bit more, he he admits to at least three things that I've never heard George admit to before, and I'm going to leave it at that because you got to come back and listen. I was shocked when I heard two of them. I was really shocked about, but uh, you know, and your feedback. Give us your feedback, please. Don't uh, don't send us. Don't hate. hold back on the feedback, Jack. <laughs> yeah, don't send us all the hate mail and the ugly stuff because I get enough of that already. And remember, you guys have now become players in the biggest game of all. 
the game of crimes. We will see you on this same bat time, bat channel next week.